Good evening, my ponies and occultists. We are back with another episode of 33.3 FM, Occult Radio for the Unknown Armies. How are you, Frank? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Just uh, giving another look at this uh, very interesting document that we got a hold of recently. Uh, I think you listeners will be very interested in hearing about this thing. Uh, Tom, would you like to tell them about exactly what we've got our grubby little mitts on? Well, some of our listeners, those listeners who are on the Unknown Army's Facebook group, may have some experience with this document. It is entitled History of the Occult Underground, and it was a preliminary draft for... uh, It's like one of those CIA action reports, but for the uh, Occult Underground's history. Well, a very very particular vision of its history, and we'll be getting into that. Uh, Written by one James Palmer, who I think was at Rand at the time, and he's certainly made his way up in the world since. Yes, it was commissioned by the feds and wizards who were in charge of Atlas Games that cover for the deep state conspiracy that existed and still does. We got some big names attached to this document as editors. We got Ken Height, who I think has got independent. John Tynes, who is uh, working for a different sort of wizards nowadays. And then, of course, our old friend, Mr. Stolze, who God knows who he's working for now. And then Chad, I assume that's uh, Chad Bauer. Isn't it Chad, maybe Chad Underkoffler? Possibly. Uh, I'm not familiar with this Chad. It may indeed be the lake. I know the lake is involved in some game design, but that's not well known. Yes. And James Palmer, from his start at Rand writing obscure dossiers about occult subcultures, has certainly made his way up in the world since published author, and he's one of the editors for Foreign Affairs, I believe it is. That's uh, Foreign Policy. Foreign Policy, thank you. He's certainly made some influence. He definitely has the ear of Nomon and the various other conspiracies that exist. Well, again, as I'm sure that his role as an editor and the fact that he has history writing up this sort of thing, those are no mere coincidence. He's, I'm sure, leveraged some of his own occult mojo to make his Way up into positions of power, just like uh, all these editors have since. I don't believe in coincidences. There are only incidences. Well put. So this document gives a rather skewed history of the occult underground. One that is very much a product of its time. It's very Western-centric for one, which Tormson and I have more than a few words I on. do feel that it was probably partially like creative direction, and there were probably some market-based thinking of what was wanted in the role-playing game market at the time. Yeah, time talks about it. We need to bring in the big names, your Crowleys, your Theosophists, that sort I'm of shit. I'm not sure if it was as good of an idea as they would have thought, and I have some thoughts on that, but I think there was a degree of creative direction, but it does end up being sort of a document which is a generic sort of history of Western Hermeticism with Anonami's spin on it, which is a bit of a missed opportunity. But then again, it was never completed, and this is only a preliminary draft. It could have developed if the line had continued at the time. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened um, among the higher-ups there. You know that there's at least some truth in here, because someone was trying to make sure that this stuff did not get out to the general public. I mean, I'm not dismissing the truth of this document of that it's a relatively accurate description of the occult underground as it existed 
But it's a very narrow description. Oh, yes. That's the key thing. It's very narrow, but it comes sort of with a thesis. Like, it starts off with the history of the underground. And the opening paragraph talks about how, in some senses, the occult underground has been around ever since humans ever started to hide magical secrets of sex and death and wisdom, right? So, in some ways, the occult underground goes all the way back to when we lived in caves and ran around with spears and loincloths and things like that. Because the problem is we don't know exactly when this particular universe was rebooted, and it could be that Paleolithic doesn't really exist. Yep, yep. And those aren't even mutually exclusive. So we have no idea how long the occult underground goes back. There may have been an occult underground in the last universe, the universe before that, maybe it varies, we don't know. Where the document's starting is, like, ancient Greece, right? It's going with this whole typical narrative of the heritage of Western civilization and kind of focusing on that whole line. It, it even explains this explicitly, and it says that the underground can be defined more sharply, that it's not just the supernatural, it's not just avatars and wizards and secret groups. It's a very specific subculture of the West, which was born in Rome, but actually Greece, and now chiefly found in the United States. My problem with this is that he's saying, like, in this essay, I define the occult underground as blah, blah, blah. I don't buy it because he never actually defines what that very specific subculture is and how it differs from, like, magical undergrounds in other parts of the world or other time periods. Yeah, totally agreed. His key thesis for this whole paper is that the occult underground is fundamentally an urban phenomenon and tied in with urban development. Sure, I can kind of get that because there was maybe occultism before then, but the urban is what brought the underground aspect. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to say it's very urban, how do you not start with the first cities? How do you not start with Exactly. Why are you starting with Greece instead of the Mesopotamian River Valleys? Why aren't you starting with Uruk or Sumer or just all the fucking or other ones? Just like the fact that or, or Egypt, Egypt even. Or fucking Memphis that there was an entire ancient urban civilization in the Indus Valley that just disappeared for various reasons. I, mean, I think you'd want to talk about that. Again, the thesis that anywhere there's an urban environment, there's going to be occultists that are kind of hiding amongst the general population. Sure, fine thesis. But saying that is in any way specifically a Western phenomenon or starts with Greece, that's a hell of an assumption to make. It goes into that woolly territory of what western even means like personally i don't consider greece or rome to be of western civilization i don't think western civilization it can be really described until the age of discovery before that it was classical civilization which is mediterranean and then later medieval civilization which was christian and the west in my conception of the world history is something that developed when the maritime peoples of Western Europe developed the big-ass boats with the guns on them and went around taking over the rest of the world and started to consider themselves in comparison to the rest of the world when in, in the medieval European civilization, their world conception was different. It was more linked to Christianity. And in classical civilization, their view of the world was, again, very different from what later developed. So, I mean, getting into what the West even is is a big fucking subject that... Which is why he probably shouldn't have used it as yeah. a thesis. <laughs> I agree. I fundamentally agree there. I'm thinking that uh, Mr. Palmer was ultimately a bit too influenced by the great and dark Cleomancer, most popularly known by the name of Edward Gibbon. Quite possibly. 
I would like this whole document and it's bias a lot more. Like if he had sort of written it in character as like, this is a, a particular occultist's view of the history of the occult underground, because then I could just be like, oh yeah, okay. This is some fucking- I mean, it is. It, it, it is. It is. But it's, it's presented in a way which is like- yeah, objective. It's more objective. Yeah. Whenever a book is being written in an objective voice, that is one you should be most critical because if someone's upfront about their biases, then unless they're pulling some weird reverse psychology shit, then there's usually a degree that you can trust them there. But if someone's saying like, no, this is a definitive take, yeah, you should be uh, pretty skeptical on that one. Exactly. Especially with all the feds involved with the creation of this document. I would say that to an extent, it's a reflection of the way that the game line was written at the time. But like in certain aspects, the way the through line going from ancient Greece and Rome the modern day is defined in this is a bit of a cop-out and for certain areas they were just is able to avoid talking about certain things because maybe it will be too complicated i just don't like the fact that the occult underground is this western thing because it means i can't be like i want to talk about the occult underground of like medieval japan and then someone could say like oh but that's actually not technically that's not an occult underground yeah. the idea of an occult underground is something that nests within an occult mainstream. So any society which has an occult mainstream, which is every society, is going to have an occult underground. Yeah, yeah. So let's actually go over this document a bit here. Where it starts is talking about the uh, old mystery cults of ancient Greece, which didn't even start with ancient Greece. They're, you know, descended from a lot of Egyptian and Babylonian cults that were then exported to Greece. But far as the sort of underground aspect of it, yeah, I guess I can understand that thesis. It is a place to start if you want to choose a place to start. It is a place to start. And he does make a very solid point, which is that the sect of the naked goddess is very similar to the way that these mystery cults work. Yes, and this is something that's very interesting to me. The idea that mystery cults began possibly around ascensions, I think. Like, well, like the naked goddess ascended which created the sect of the naked goddess and which was created pornomancy. I'm tickled by the idea that adept schools could happen as byproducts of avatar ascensions. Yeah, whether it's culturally or sort of the mystic ripples of a avatar ascension, right? Like the section on ancient Greece is fairly short and it talks a lot about like what actually exists in the secular version of history, the mysteries of Demeter and stuff like that. Where I'd be more interested in, like, in ancient Greece, what avatars ascended and what mystery cults were born from that and what magical schools were born from that. Like, if you have, like, a warrior, a particular kind of warrior, because it would have replaced a previous warrior, ascended in ancient Greece, what is the sort of adept school that would develop around in adoration? Uh, the Mater, who they're establishing as, like, one of the first mystery cults, classic fertility and mother cult. Agriturgy, that's pretty straightforward, right? As long as there has been farmers and people tilling the land, there's been people drawing mystic power from that. There's been many, many, many different kinds of agromancy. Farm-based magic is something very... Which is a problem for this document. Well, yes, but there's lots of adept schools that end up influencing and feeding into adept schools that follow them. That That's not weird at all. So, of course, is farming magic going way back but it's changed over the years as farming has itself changed 
as farming practices have changed, as we enter the current era of farming where Monsanto dominates things and you're dealing with genetic modification and seed pens and all sorts of shit, right? Exactly. And also with the with terms of magic and the occult underground historically, because any kind of farming-based spiritualism, any kind of farming-based folk beliefs, that's all the mainstream. But the, the underground, like, sort of feeds on it and twists it. So it's going to vary depending if you're talking about like ancient Mesoamerica sacrificing people to keep the sun up and the corn growing. That's the mainstream. There's an underground underneath that which has got real power. And if you're talking about like rice-based folk rituals in like southern China like a thousand years ago, that's again the mainstream while there's an underground underneath that. Farm-based magic has always existed everywhere as soon as we had started farming, probably as soon as the maybe the first guy like planting barley or whatever it was in Mesopotamia or Turkey. But again, this document is more interested in what's going on in urban environments, which makes ancient Greece with the city-states as the main political... Well, they were still surrounded by a large farming population. Oh, lots of oh for sure. Agricultural land and shit. So, yeah, people would go into town, participate in their Demeter mysteries, go back home and be like, hey, look at how much better my crops are doing. That's because I sacrificed my third child to the goddess. Again, again, one of the reasons we're even talking about ancient Greece at all is because it's the stuff that happened in the cities that was more likely to be written down by some thaumaturge. I think that's one of the key things here is that this is just what we happen to have the historical record left of. I mean, yes, there are whole places, there are whole parts of the world where for one reason or another, the records were destroyed when you're talking about like Mayan records that were deliberately destroyed by the Spanish, or you're talking about something more naturalistic, like how in ancient India, the most logical thing to write on was dried leaves, and that shit doesn't last, not compared to like writing on silk or papyrus or whatnot. And that was just a a matter of practicality. Or the magic's just an oral tradition like we talked about with the Australian Aborigines. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Um, If something's like, oral traditions last longer, but they don't last when everyone's dead. They need someone to pass the message on. And that's kind of why I think with ancient Greece, at least they were like, that's the sort of thing that documents like paper and papyrus. That's why we know about stuff that happened in this period, this place, this time. And that carries over to cult underground stuff as well. Like we don't even have all of Greek philosophy or all of Greek, like lots of stuff is lost that we know existed. So of course, the vast majority of any writing on the powers, the real magical powers that existed at the time, it's gone. It's it's gone and not coming back. Think of how little shit we have from someone like Sappho, who was actually trying to publicize her work. Now we're dealing with groups that were actively trying to stay hidden in secret. Of course, there's not going to be much shit left. Sometimes that helps if like they had like secret caches of documents that they used as part of their mystery cult rites. But a lot of these are passed on orally just because it's easier to maintain the secrecy that way. You see that with current adept schools. We also have to take into account the fact that there is like 2,000 years of potential treasure hunters going into these places looking for occult documents and taking them and either destroying them or putting them in the Vatican or putting them in vaults underneath Baghdad that got destroyed by the Mongols later. Like there's seen lots of shit happening in between that could destroy any kind of occult mystery. 
Or I still more recently, yeah. So from there, this document start, shifts from Greece rather jarringly to Rome. It, it was rather jarring for the Mediterranean world at the time. It was pretty jarring. <laughs> Who are these fucking Italians coming in here with, with better military techniques than we have? The mystery cults really started getting politically influential in Rome. Specifically coming out of usually Roman Egypt, they start going to some of the big ones like Cult of Mithras, Horus and Thoth, Kybel. Again, all these cults that did not originate in Rome or Greece, they came from Anatolia or Mesopotamia or, or Egypt. Egypt. Yep, exactly. So Kybel, of course, associated with what has now become the sexual rebus back in the 90s, was called the Mesochromaphrodite. So the priest of Kybel, the Gali, simply did castration as part of their initiation ritual. It's very possible that it was like that. Like, it probably was. I just always have a grain of salt for descriptions because I find that they have an interest in making any kind of like, ooh, scary foreign cult sound as yeah. red as possible. That's my problem with Roman descriptions of the cults of Carthage. Although that's, again, there's an archaeological debate because from basis of um, discovered remains of a uh, burned babies' bones that have been found in North Africa. They're like, no, this definitely happened. It's hard to say because I don't trust the fucking Romans. The Romans, they're the, the winners write books of history, and I don't completely trust them. As far as agromancers and the mother, there's a, there's a pretty understandable connection there between the Avatar and the Adept school. But as far as Mithras and Kybel, Horus and Thoth, those are a bit trickier, I think. What are some adept schools that would be related to those? It's hard to say, because these gods are often used as masks for avatars, for avatar cults. A lot of these avatars were, at one point, one avatar that have since split into multiple. Exactly. But like, it's hard to make... I don't like making a one-to-one -one connection between avatars and deities from mythology, because, it's again, it's the occult mainstream versus the occult underground. But, like, let, let's talk in the case of Mithras, right? Where he's very representative of what modern archetypes are. The masterless man, the martyr, and the warrior, right? Sure. But what, what adept schools do you think tie into this pretty well? Whether modern ones or ones that existed back then, which then went on to influence modern ones? Well, I would think that with worship of Mithras and saying that the Mithras mystery cult like any kind of adept schools who were hanging around again they were like the creepy dudes in the corner of the temple you know whispering secrets to each other as they are now as they are now right whenever you think about adept schools you have to look at the zeitgeist and the society that existed at the time find out what's important and figure out how to twist it and fuck it up in the way that an adept thinks about the world right if i was running like unknown armies invictus I would probably have the Mithraic cult being mostly just a cult mainstream, maybe having like a Mithraic equivalent of the Order of St. Cecil involved. They seem like anything that's like that uh, established to me, uh, it, they're either going to have like a, a, an occult um, underground conspiracy inside them, like uh, your uh, Mac attacks, or it's going to be like a secret. Like, magic, we must control all the magic conspiracy, in my opinion. James Farmer does talk about the Roman equivalent of Plutomancy. I can buy that Plutomancy started in Rome because the Roman banking system was fairly unique. 
What I do like about this is like the idea of charging up from the prominent and public spending of money, giving the people their bread and circuses. That was really important uh, politically in ancient Rome. You wanted to keep the plebs happy with like stuff, like feasts and corn. The old meaning of corn was important. Big feasts and festivals were so important. To twist that up, I don't know how you would do it as a like an adept school, but I think it would be fun as a campaign to have like an objective to try to restore this form of magic and teach it to Jeff Bezos, so he'll just start running these massive like. <laughs> yeah, that works. I want this guy has too much money. We can either guillotine him or we can teach him this magic, so he just starts to like put on these massive parties. Bezos stuck twenty twenty one. I appreciate that, like, some of the shit that goes back to ancient Rome shows just how old some of these archetypes are. Like, the MVP goes back to Rome, arguably, with the gladiators and shit, right? The MVP shows up all sorts of places. Anytime there was any kind of sports, the MVP existed in Mesoamerica, the Aztec ball games. It would have existed anywhere that there was, like, competitive sports. You'd have your MVP. Any kind of team-based sports or games. I don't even think it needs team. Like MVP of most valuable okay but sure i'd argue that like a figure like tiger woods is definitely channeling the mvp in some way despite not actually being part of a team i don't know about that i'm not sure i would give him something else regardless like roman gladiators and chariot racers were definitely part of a team the various colors which were a big part of roman politics Uh, and later byzantine politics even bigger oh i didn't know that Uh, there were riots they had a civil war over chariot racing everyone has sports riots thompson come on it was a civil war the city (laughs) was on fire anyway so yeah i'm agreeing with this document that a lot of these avatars go way back and have changed in various ways over the years and my thing about the um, mystery cults and the adepts is I think that's less of a um, result of mystic backwash of ascension and more a result of, all right, you have all these people in one place that are all into mystic bullshit. This is a very good environment for someone who comes up with their own adept school to spread that. Yeah. Like, there's plenty of obscure adept schools that came up before then even. It's just, all right, you rarely had enough people to pass this knowledge on to that it stuck around for a while. I would say that in my head canon, most adepts don't become purveyors of adept schools. There's things called Magikians who just have their own individual idiosyncratic form of magic. Sometimes Magikians end up accidentally founding adept schools after they die because like people look at their shit and they become sort of cult figures in both senses of the word. Often what happens with that is you'll find that that's when the school starts getting codified. This makes it stronger, but also weaker because it's more likely to collapse later. And also it loses some of that like individualistic flavor that you might get from a McGeekian. You're, you're ultimately just following a ground already trod upon instead of really delving into your own weird worldview and coming out of that the other end of like, well, yeah, of course I can change the universe. So that could be like the two different models of where adept schools come from. One model being it comes from Avatar Ascension cults, Mystic Backwash. And the other being it comes from an individual person's very idiosyncratic worldview that gets sort of boulderized and becomes more accessible to other people and becomes developed into a school. And this is kind of why I would prefer, instead of having like ancient Greece being the start and then 
ancient Rome being the first quote-unquote underground. I would say that the actual breakthrough in terms of adept schools, as in being a school of thought, probably came about during like the golden age of philosophy, like 3rd century BC. And the good thing about that is that removes the Western bias there, because you'll find like Socrates and the Buddha and Confucius, they were all born in the the same couple of centuries. There's plenty of philosophers out of history, Western and otherwise, that said shit that seemed wise. People were into it. Like, yeah, sure, I'm down to live with you and your weird commune in the wilderness somewhere and follow these principles where we're really into ratios. I'm not allowed to eat beans. Again, like I prefer to have that time period when like there were sort of codified schools of thought that maybe were not as tied to religion anymore. When in Greece, you had your Stoics and your hedonists and things. I know in ancient India, they had schools of philosophy, some of which were extinct, including really, really, um, there's one group that were called the eel wrigglers because they were super crazy sophists and they pissed off the early Buddhists because they basically had no position on anything. They were like uber agnostics. And like, there was one school I was reading about where they just ended up being hated by everyone because they would never commit to any particular position. And also in ancient China, there was various schools, some of which were just like the records were destroyed or were just lost, that believed in many different things, lots of kinds of sophistry and wordplay. All these kind of things, like the fact that intellectually in different parts of the world, there was so much development of philosophical schools were not necessarily, they were often partially, but not necessarily religious in nature, probably parallels a similar development in the occult underground Yeah, no, I agree there. But it is important to talk about the religious roots of the underground. And this document does go into that even during Rome with like how the history of Judaism and Christianity intersect with the underground. The writer does make a very interesting point, which is the big change that Christianity represents in adept schools and such, which is less in belief systems and more with evangelizing, which is how the sect of the naked goddess is very similar to old mystery cults in certain ways, but they also evangelize. There are deeper mysteries, but they aren't trying to be an exclusive secret club. They want people to find out about this wisdom. Yes, exactly. And that is a different tack than a lot of the mystery cults took. And that helps a lot with long-term survival more than anything else. Oh, for sure. I do feel there's an undeveloped opportunity here, especially considering the diversity of early Christian thought and all the crazy Gnosticism and pre-Council of Nicaea stuff is rife for, like, adepts. Also, just a bunch of different archetypes that Christ and God were being viewed through. Like, a lot of the Gnostics thought of God fundamentally as a genderless being, which ties in very well the sexual rebus. That's an interesting idea for a cult, like a cult that views every archetype as a different facet of Jesus. They talk about that later in the book where they discuss Christianity in the modern day, where you have some Christian adepts that think, yes, there is the invisible clergy, but above that is the one super archetype, which is Christ. And he sticks around in every universe. And then he gets transformed into an old lady who lives in Melbourne. Yep, exactly. One thing I don't like about this section and this is what I notice sometimes in 2E books and even 3E to an extent in the writing is I've noticed that sometimes there's a bit of an element of no fun allowed where things are restricted for reasons that I don't think they should be. He talks about like how, generally speaking, the occult underground was mainly confined to Rome, right? Only Rome. Yeah, 
Like, there weren't other huge cities in the Roman Empire. And it's a matter of practicality. If I was running, like, Anonami's Invictus, I would want to start in Rome. But if my players went to Alexandria, say, I would absolutely want there to be a thriving occult underground there that they could butt heads with. They went to Athens or wherever, like any other large city of the empire. It's in the same way that you have adepts now who go from like Philadelphia to Chicago and realize, oh shit, this shit's, this shit's completely different here. That's what I want. The key thing with the perspective represented in this essay, it's very narrow with its focus, a bit too narrow. And it ends up honing in on like very, I mean, maybe not so much in the late 90s, but by now fairly well-known bits of hermetic history rather than like throwing out just a bunch of weird and fun hooks for different areas of the world at the time. Exactly. I think the main point should be hooks, just more and more hooks. Yeah. And if you're just talking about like, there's a paragraph all about how Emperor Caligula could have been like an avatar or whatnot. I'm like, that's cool, but give me more hooks. And that's obvious. Like, oh, Simon the Magus. Like, oh, of course Simon the Magus is an avatar or an adept or whatever. I don't need this source book to give me that idea. It's not wacky and weird and out there. and It's not something that's unexpected. I want more that sort of like takes me by surprise, you know? It's something yeah. that takes me like, oh, that's a great idea sort of thing. As opposed to be like, yeah, okay, Caligula was the avatar of the bad king. Sure, that makes sense. And part of that is admittedly just a result of when this was written. Fuck, this is pre-Da Vinci Code, right? Like, this is before there was, like, a huge boom. It was of... post-Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Okay, but that was... Yes, 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 but that wasn't, like, a huge part of the pop culture zeitgeist, the way the sure. Vinci Code was. Sure. And, you know, we're also talking as just people that are into this sort of thing. And this is also pre-Wikipedia, right? Like, if you want to look into the a broad overview of occult history back then, you actually had to look pretty hard. Yeah, it was a lot more difficult to find information. You'd have to go to the library. <laughs> the book I tend to think of as the big overview book of all this sort of hermetic shit is The Secret Teachings of All Ages. That, I think, was written in like the 80s or 70s, and basically there's nothing in this 30 pages that isn't covered there better, you know? It's only $1 on Kindle. It was published in 1928, my dude. <laughs> Fuck, yeah, there you go. There you go. I highly recommend it if you can get, especially the illustrated version of that book is phenomenal. But yeah, there's if you want like good, solid, occult, mainstream sort of shit, Secret Teaching of All Age is a great place to start. And there's nothing in this text that couldn't just be found there. This text, like there are a few hooks I like. I like the descriptions of how the underground worked. I like some of the references to the kinds of adept schools that existed. It gets better as it goes on, and it gets something a bit more recognizable to the modern occult underground, where it's like actually subculture-driven rather than just mystery cults that are pretty widely known about. I still think that there is an argument to be made for Anonami's Invictus. Oh, I, that sounds great. I probably wouldn't want to run that, because I don't think I know enough about Roman history to do that justice. But playing in that sounds phenomenal. Like, I would just steal from Asterix and Obelix. Like, I don't need, <laughs> it doesn't need to be real. It just has to be good enough. So then, of course, it gets into the collapse of Rome and talks about medieval Europe. It dedicates a paragraph each to the Byzantines and the Middle East, respectively. It's the same paragraph. It's just a long paragraph, but it's the same paragraph. 
like the hermetic tradition was barely a thing in medieval Europe until Rudolf II when a lot of that shit started coming back and it was preserved in alchemy a bit. How can you even talk about alchemy without going further into the The Middle East? Yeah. No, like the Middle East is what preserved the hermetic tradition primarily after Rome fell. As far as the hermetic tradition, Alexandria was a much greater source of that stuff and much more of a focal point of thought than Rome was. This is kind of what puts the lie to me of the having a through line from ancient Rome occult underground to modern Western occult underground is because it sort of brushes over the fact that you can equally say, like you'd say, okay, Western civilization is descended from Rome. So is Orthodox civilization. And so to a large extent, was Muslim civilization because during the Islamic expansion, they just blew into town in like Syria and Egypt and stuff and largely kept the bureaucracy and the infrastructure intact um, like because it was already there. And so like in terms of the continuation of classical civilization, that was equally as part of Islamic civilization as it was Western European civilization, in my opinion. Again, it's like not even just the Eurocentrism, it's the Western Eurocentrism. They don't talk about Rudolf II at all, who was, if not the biggest source, at least the biggest funder of a cult innovation in Europe since the fall of Rome, really. Like you have like the witch communities and shit. But far as Hermeticism, Rudolf II is the European guy you're looking towards. Tycho Bray, John Dee to name a couple. So, again, you're talking about stuff that's later than this period, the Darkish Ages. Rudolf II was right at the, that transition period. But sure, sure. You're going to say that this sort of covers like a thousand years of history. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, it, regardless of where you slot it, Rudolf II doesn't cover and that's a huge fucking oversight. There's a lot of oversights here. And here's the thing. I think that might be intentional. Yeah, possibly. Like, And I know, not just as a marketing thing. Think about this, right? Think about this. Who are these guys working for in this time period? In the, like the mid-90s, when this text is being developed. They're working for the military, the U.S. military. And where is the U.S. military focused on at that time period, and specifically focused on reducing the cultural influence and political influence of these areas as much as possible? The Middle East and Eastern Europe. That's true. Expanding NATO and yeah, dealing with Saddam. Yeah, dealing with Saddam, getting him out of there. So I think that Palmer downplayed these parts of the occult tradition on purpose as a propaganda tool. Oh, I see. That kind of makes sense. So, oh, that actually makes complete sense. Right? Right? So... We're going to post a link to this document, and anyone that takes a look at it, just remember there's a very good reason to take all this shit with a grain of salt. I'm not saying that James Palmer was directly involved with the run-up to 9-11, but I'm not saying he wasn't either. God damn it. Not saying that, James Palmer. Don't be angry. Again, I'm not saying but I'm also not not saying it. That is true. I feel that a couple of things here in terms of the magic is a little bit uninspired. Like having a form of flesh magic, which is based on like flagellation is a bit obvious to me. It's obvious. Yeah. Like fuck that shit's in Warhammer fantasy. Exactly. 
I looked at Iconergy, which I'm just like, come on. That's kind of fun. It's fun, but what's the first thing you think of when you think of the Byzantine Empire? It's like, oh, okay, Icon. Of course, of course, yeah. When I think about what that kind of magic looks like, I kind of like the, like, I can think of this, like, it's a beautiful version of, like, kind of like clockworking, but more artistic sort of thing. And I'm like, I can, I can dig that. I think of comparisons to celebrity magic. There's really a lot of parallels there, right? Especially with how idiosyncratic the various followers of saints and shit got, where you have patron saints of certain things, each an adept that is an iconomancer of a given saint is going to be getting powers related to that saint's patronage, just through their belief system. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean... But it would have been better to go into more detail because the Byzantine Empire was super interesting. This is also a period of time where getting into the fact that it was very Western focused and only one paragraph given for the Islamic and Byzantine occult undergrounds. No talk about Asia, even though this is the time of the Tang. They talk about Asia a bit, but only when it starts getting imported to the world. Yeah, but this is the time period in the Song and Tang dynasties when, like, Chinese alchemy was so huge. And, like, in terms of their occult underground, like, the Chang'an was the biggest city in the world at the time. They would have had their occult underground. Tang dynasty is super weird and interesting. Uh, when did Taoism start again? Well, that's a good question, but ancient. <laughs> ancient. Like, esoteric Taoism was something that would have been going on, the equivalent of authentic thaumaturgy, in my opinion. That could have been something to talk about. But the problem is the way this book is set up, because it's like talking about if it's got the whole occult underground defined as something that starts from the classical world and going to the modern day, then talking about other stuff around the world sort of like muddies that thesis. But it's a shitty thesis. Yeah, it's a shitty thesis. And also, it's like this is meant to be a document that gives people ideas that they can use in their games that are presumably mostly set in the modern era. And if you're going to steal things from history, steal things from all of history, not just like this one narrow line. I mean, hell, if you want to focus on America even, which a lot of UA does, like go into the spiritual beliefs and, like, the esoteric ends of certain Native American belief systems, right? Which do exist. And even just parts of America, like, if you were, even in the late 90s, like, you're running a UA game, but if you were living in, like, Hawaii or something, you're probably going to have as much occult influence from Asia as you do from Europe, just because of the way, of the, the, like, people who live there. And far as California, too, they pretty much entirely brush over the period of European history where Spanish domination was a big thing. Much talk about South America in this text. I'll, do, I'll give you that much. Yeah. Like, at all. Uh, where is my 19th century Argentinian occult underground, James Palmer? Tell me about how Borges accidentally discovered the House of Renunciation. Come on, this shit writes itself. Exactly. And I think that's uh, my key problem with this. A lot of the shit does write itself. A lot of this feels kind of autopilot-y. Of just like, all right, I'm going to reach for the most obvious thing and put them together. There's nothing surprising here. Well, there is the fact that this was written like 20 years ago. James Palmer is a very good writer, but there's that thing about how you have to write 10,000, what was it, like a million terrible words before you can write one good word. And uh, on the way to becoming a shill for the globalist agenda, he put out a few uh, role-playing game books. Yeah. So moving on to the Renaissance, they go into the typical stuff. Isaac Newton, which... I do kind of like what they do with Isaac Newton, where he... That was real interesting. 
that was fun where he ascends early on and there's just a simulacrum of Isaac Newton that he has running around doing his bidding while he's up in that the That was stratosphere. an elegant solution to the problem of like, if you're going to have a famous historical personage ascend, like how do you explain that with the historical record? Just have a golem <laughs> makes complete sense to me. I do like, this is mentioned early on, the whole idea at the time period, the invisible clergy was considered to have only 36 members, deacons, which I think is an interesting piece of flavor and something that you can use in later games. Like It's a conception of the invisible clergy, which is wrong, but it's something that's been around for a long time and maybe has power in and of itself. Like, I mean, if there's only 36, then I think myself, I've met more than 36 different types of avatars. So who the fuck knows? They go to the Order of St. Cecil a bit, which is, again, pretty straightforward, kind of writes itself, typical Templar slash Opus Dei style, Holy Blood, Holy Grail sort of shit. Again, this is pre-Da Vinci Code. It just, a lot of stuff here and here seems very occult mainstream to me. I want more secrets. Uh, They get into it a bit better when they go into the details of some of the secret societies. Like, there's a pretty good box where they talk about the reasons why you have so many more queer people in the occult underground. That's interesting. That follows my sort of idea of like, you're always going to have a a slightly proportionally higher number of marginalized people in the occult underground than anyone else. Like I even have an idea that there might be more marginalized people who are adepts while non-marginalized people are more likely to become avatars. I think it would depend on the type of avatar more than anything else. There's There's certainly certain archetypes that could gain charges off of lifestyle where you're more marginalized and less perhaps assimilationist yes. how that naturally ties into how homosexual communities manifest themselves in so many parts of history where they have to stay on the dl for their own safety in a way that a lot of adepts do too uh, that ties into like something that's later with the history of 19th century cryptomancy especially in the uk that was a big part of it and it's interesting. It's an interesting way of, of doing it, especially in the Renaissance era. The interesting thing, like periods of history where homosexuality was more likely to be accepted are probably going to have less adept schools within the homosexual community because there's no need for it. Yeah. Then the archetype of the poof or whatever was around at the period would be less powerful then. Yeah. But that's something that happened way later. That was very, that's very particular. Commonwealth English. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And that was a time period where homosexuality was, in certain ways, accepted, in other ways, very much not. Which is that sort of symbolic tension that, bring, that breeds magic. Yep. Have you heard of Polari? No, I don't know Polari. Okay, Polari was a form of slang, cat slang, like a, like a coded language that was used. Oh, okay. It was a cant. I gotcha. It was a cant used in the gay subculture, but also it, it says here, criminals, prostitutes, professional wrestlers, merchant Navy sailors, circus and fairground, showmen, and actors. All the adepts spoke Polari from the 16th to the 19th century. There was probably an adept school related to it. There's a long-standing connection with Punch and Judy street puppet performance. All right. This is definitely nice. an adept language. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's probably, that may very well have been where it came from. Uh, it came from like some code in a small adept school or cult that ended up having some horrible accident happen that led to its slang getting extremely popular among lower classes. It sort of died out, but it had a resurgence of popularity in the, ni- in the 1960s. Like, I've seen it used in some old British television shows and things like that. 
So moving to the Renaissance and, well, we kind of went over the Renaissance already, to be honest. Yeah, there's just not that much I want to talk about. There's this- so much more than fucking Isaac Newton. One angle that I do like, though, is that adepts don't get hit very hard by the witch hunts because the witch hunts were a largely rural phenomenon. Also, like, they weren't really trying to find actual witches. They were just yeah. burning people that they didn't like. There's a lot of emphasis on the Renaissance in this book that I'm just, like, not interested in. Secret society sort of shit. The big ones like the uh, Rosicrucians and... If I was running a game that was heavily onto all that kind of, like, real occult mainstream stuff, I probably wouldn't use UA for it, (laughs) to be honest. I could use UA, but I think you'd want to put a spin on it. Like, you'd want to emphasize all the shitty personal drama that ends up happening beneath all the highfalutin ritualism. Like, the horrible abuse that Crowley inflicted upon his uh, acolytes. I don't know, I wouldn't use Anonymous at all. I would run it like a straight old school style. I'd probably do a little bit of a crossover with like 1980s action espionage tropes. All right, I can dig that. Having like eco-terrorists and like the IRA and shit involved. I mean... Basically, every fucking RPG company had a game like that in the mid-90s at one point or another. Chaosium had Nephilim, uh, Wizards of the Coast had Everway. Yeah. White Wolf had Mage, and then on top of that, there was Cult. Cthulhu had Shades of that in a lot of ways at the time. I think there's an idea, because I love most of the games that use this sort of thing. I like to be twisted somehow. But I do have an interest in doing something that's relatively, I guess, straight with it. Just like, no, this is just secret societies and craziness. There's definitely good material for that. We should cover that at a later date. Absolutely. I think that the talking about this time of history of like Renaissance to early modern Western hermetic tradition, that's a whole episode in of itself. We're covering literally what, like 4,000 years of history in a few hours? You're not going to be able to do that justice. And in this whole section, the thing that made my eyes bug out the most was the references to the Coriolis scenario, <laughs> which was <laughs> when, when D20 was trying to take over the entire role-playing game industry, that horrible time, those dark days. We should probably talk about the Ascension of the Magdalene while we're here. I haven't read it. <laughs> really? Okay, so probably the most obscure UA text, because it's just an adventure. I know that it has D20 rules included with it. Yes. The Ascension of the Magdalene is a early 2000s Unknown Armies adventure, whereas most Unknown Armies stuff was splat books, you know, stuff like Lawyers, Guns, and Money, The New Inquisition, etc. And then there's the couple um, scenario books. Ascension of the Magdalene is unique in a lot of ways because one, it's just a self-contained adventure. It's fairly short compared to most uh, other published UA material. Two, it's set in the Prague of Rudolph II, so there is some canonical UA material for that. And three, it has two rule systems, like Torm just brought up. It's also written for the D20 rule system. Dark days, I tell you. So for those of you newer to this hobby, there was a brief period in the early 2000s where right after a 3.5 and 3rd edition of D&D came out, Wizards released something called the OGL, the Open Gaming License, which basically said, hey, you can use this system for whatever the fuck you want. Can't use these certain copyright things from D&D like Mind Flayers and Beholders and that sort of shit. But 
You can't use basically the core of the system. You couldn't even copyright anyway, by the way. You can't copyright rules. So this whole thing was bullshit from the beginning. Yeah, but it was one of those things of nobody in the RPG industry has enough money to want to make that risk. Yeah. Again, dark times. Yep. So everyone was like, hey, this is sort of like that thing that we tried with GURPS about 10 years ago where... What if there was one system for everything, except will totally work this time because it's a system that everyone knows, D&D, D20. And it wasn't so much a case of trying to fit a square peg into a round hole as a dozen square pegs gangbanging a round hole. I guess you could say that this isn't the darkest timeline. The GURPS OGL timeline possibly was worse. Yeah. So part of what this has is that you have D20 stats for adept schools. Like, Clockworks were one of them. Yeah, I could see that. Where they're basically statted up like D&D classes. It's very much a microcosm of the period it came out of. Not just in the way it's designed, but also subject matter. Essentially the Magdalene. A lot of this shit ties in the holy blood, holy grail sort of shit. You know, the secret history of Mary Magdalene being the betrothed of Christ. But keep in mind that all this was before the Da Vinci Code. So this was still very novel at the period. And it's such a fun artifact of a very specific period of role-playing games and just the broader a culture in general. I've heard that in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a, a minor adept school that would charge from converting role-playing games to different <laughs> systems. Like, you get power from converting Rifts books into GURPS. It was risky, uh, and this D20 thing was a bid for power by a powerful um, rules lawyer was the word they used at the time. And That's why they call themselves the Wizards of the Coast. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, uh, although that's the mainstream. That's the cult mainstream. These guys are underneath. These guys are... Well, no, there's um, a reason Tynes has thrown his lot in with these people. That's all I'm saying. Oh, yeah. Before we get into clock working, uh, I would like to take a little break. Yeah, let's take a caller. All right. And we'll get into the modern world. Long time caller, first time listener. Can't believe you're putting this guff about, about all about Australia. Everyone knows it was all made up by the flat earthers to explain why South America doesn't just flip the whole world off the turtle. Then it was embraced by the British East India Company to hide their labor colonies in the Antarctic hollow earth. The first 20 years of Neighbours was filmed in Nevada by Stanley Kubrick to keep the lie going. Since then, <laughs> Rupert Murdoch, King Nadero, he keeps the episodes coming so News Corp can bring down Western democracy. So next time, a little fact-checking, please. And welcome back, listeners. Uh, you're listening to 33.3 FM. We are just now getting started with our discussion of the modern occult underground modern in the sense of you know roughly 18th century onwards maybe that's a bit broad but we're getting into the late renaissance and i think 18th century is a good time for early modern really is 18th century onwards in my opinion yeah that tends to be one of the uh definitions i see the word thrown around and really where this section of the document starts with is very much a now archaic piece of modernism, which are the clockworks, the mechanomancers, which this book dedicates a surprising amount of text to, which I kind of get why. 
the clock workers of the time period were very important. I think it's because it was clock workers were featured in the source book. It was one of the, the oldest of the old school schools. Personally, I think that, as we were saying with agromancy, clockworking or making magical machines is something that predates this period. Like when you look at like the ancient Greek sort of Antikythera mechanism, Parthian batteries in Persia, weird medieval Chinese like gadgets and stuff. There's a very interesting dimension to mechanomancy, especially starting out, which is that it is so modern. A lot of its initial cult identity comes from and is coached in this idea that it is representative of the modern world. That's specifically given as part of its paradox. Was there a difference in the paradox for the old school one versus the new one? What is the paradox? You are destroying your memories to build these things because you're basically only tied into the now. Because clockworking is so much of a matter of the present, it makes complete sense that you have to destroy a memory that you have of the past to create this artifact of the future. That's where a lot of the symbolic resonance comes from. And it's interesting how that changes over time because the school itself hasn't changed that much over time. But it's switched from being futurist thing to being an anachronistic and out-of-date thing. It does tie in with the realization in Europe at the time period because like in the Renaissance, it was all about rediscovering ancient classics and rediscovering the works of the classical world. But this was the time period when they started to realize, wait a minute, we've got better shit than they ever had. Yeah, exactly. You have this discussion on the history of mechanomancy, starting out in Switzerland and all that sort of stuff. The cuckoo clock, right? Over time, more so than any other school, mechanomancy has very much been fixed in the way it works. Because, interestingly, the symbolic resonance has changed over time, but has always been compatible with what the school is about and does. Interesting thing about mechanomancy today versus then is mechanomancy today is very much drawing energy of the whole paleo futures of the 19th century. While in the 18th century, it wasn't about that. It was, there's a reference to the God of the Deists being a clockworker and the whole Isaac Newton's like God clockworker idea. I think that's the symbolic resonance that ties into early mechanomancy. And as you said, it did change over time, largely in response to Industrial Revolution. I think that things that like uh, 18th century clock working existed earlier in medieval China and ancient Greece, but those places never had an industrial revolution. So those forms died out. But early clock working was about individual adepts, like making the cuckoo clock. So you think that clockwork, the adept school, has precursors in other parts of the world? Yes, like similar forms. Various times in history, there's been automatons made and like weird bits of tech based on like water wheels and all kinds of things. Some bits of tech that we don't know how actually worked, but we have records of them. Things that were like clockworking in terms of sacrificing some kind of power to make a magical machine. I think there are precursors that other parts of the world, but 18th century European clockworking ended up dovetailing with the massive changes in society that the Industrial Revolution engendered, and that's what kept it alive for so long. That's what keeps it alive now. When it's tied in with modernity, it makes sense that you have to give memories to build these things, but in a different historical context, it could be something like giving away pieces of your free will. That would be interesting, yeah. Also, there's the idea that like in this time period, 
And in earlier time periods, when people were making weird gadgets, it was often like individual smarty pantses doing it. Like, uh, what's his face? Archimedes building all these things. But it was all Archimedes doing it. It wasn't part of a wave of new technology that was spreading because the spread of knowledge wasn't codified in a way that happened later with like universities and textbooks and journals and things. It was all just individuals. That's what happened to China as well. It was all just individuals making these cool things, showing it off to the emperor and the emperor going, that's pretty cool. And then no one else doing it again. So magical clockworking would have been the same thing. It would be like those guys, but weirder, working by themselves. Maybe they encountered each other once or twice in like the forum in Athens or wherever. And maybe they had like some beef, some old school clockworking, clockwork battles and stuff, which would be fun. And I think early clockworking in Europe was probably like that. You'd have one guy in like a dark attic surrounded by cuckoo clocks because his father was a cuckoo clock maker and he's there like taking all the bits and putting them together into some monstrosity that shouldn't shouldn't work but it can fly or whatever but it wasn't until this idea of clockwork got tied in with industrialism and modernity that the school became what we see it as now because it became like inherently antiquated yeah my clockwork has been barely used for technology or at least widespread technology because fundamentally, it's a very hard thing to mass produce. I've heard tell of certain adepts in the modern age, like sort of cyberpunk-esque adepts who can do crazy shit with the internet using like 50 megabyte fucking ancient computers because they believe in them. It's like that uh, that um, paleo-futurism can be turned into magic. And the fact that it's so fucking antiquated actually helps it to keep going. Just the other day, I saw a video of a guy who hooked up an old teletype machine and has it set up as a Linux terminal. So, like, that kind of um, weird makery, that sort of, like, like the tech wizardry that you see on YouTube. You have that with Avatars of the Hacker, too, right? Yes, but it's a bit different, but yeah, it's, it's definitely in similar ground. Like, uh, those sort of people would be more likely to become the archetype of a hacker, while a slightly more cracked version of that person might be able to do stuff in an adept way with old technology that would be impossible with like more modern technology, or even though they've only got like 20 megabytes. You don't need megabytes if you put your memories or whatever in there. Yeah, like you hook up your old Tandy or whatever to a coax cable from something you've driven together and it totally works. But with these guys, I think it definitely became a part of the fact that they would have been individual people messing around with clockworks, being influenced by deism, being influenced by the clockwork god of Isaac Newton, and then as industrialization began and because there was it was just easy to communicate, this was post-printing press and there was a mail system and like they started communicating with each other and this became codified into a school of mechanomancy. Maybe clockworkers existed before this, but like a single mechanomancy school did not. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't think what you're saying there. As far as organized schools, what we're seeing with the uh, transition to modernity, as described in this book at least, is that you're seeing a lot more adept schools pop up as we see them now. Like anarchomancy, terminomancy, hierarchomancy, a lot of these names are pretty on the nose. They are so on the nose and so uninspired. James Palmer, you could do better, but I know he can because it's 20 years later. I mean, like, think of whatever sources he drew these from, right? These Manser ideas, or the ideas of ad schools in general, it was taken in a very straightforward manner. They don't have the degree of self-consciousness and self-awareness and drive towards novelty that you see in the postmodern magic that came up in 
the 90s and afterwards. I do have some problems with the two new world forms of magic being slave magic and sugar magic, which is both on the nose and a bit offensive. Sugar magic checks out. I'm okay with that one. Sugar magic is fine. But like my problem with sugar magic is it's very obvious. Like he's like, what was in the Caribbean in the 18th century? Sugar and slaves. <laughs> like it's a- yeah. I do like that sugar magic idea, and I'd like to see how something like that exists in the modern day. Whereas before it was uh, sucromancy, nowadays it'd probably be a uh, fructomancy, right? All driven from corn Just syrup. imagine like a, a whole bunch of adepts in a in a room arguing, and then the clockwork is being like, "You guys don't know what you're talking about. I have the oldest form of magic still practiced today." And in the corner, someone says, "No, there is another," and the sugar magician <laughs> just comes out of nowhere <laughs> with his gallon jug of high fructose corn syrup, and he's just taking swigs from it. Well, it was a form of addiction-based magic, so it seemed like it was about getting other people addicted to sugar. It was probably linked in with early forms of nicotine-based magic, perhaps. Coffee-based magic. As far as the New World, Cernaturgy, it would make complete sense for that to come out of the New World, right? That's where tobacco came from. So that is an oversight. It was noticeable. Exactly. Well, I think that like in this time period, like Europe had a lot of like they had yeah. ca- coffee coming in, becoming popular, and tobacco, and you had your sugar. Like, this is a time when you would have had a lot of different types of addiction-based magic coming in, even beyond just what we consider as addictive products now. Yeah. Spices in general, spices being such an important part of the Age of Discovery and later European imperialism. Spice-based magic yeah. probably no, was huge. I mean, fuck, that goes back to. Rome, even. I mean, it's not technically a spice, but salt. There's definitely a lot of magic that comes from flavor. The salt mage and the sugar wizard. Now I want to have like a whole team of adepts who all have like flavor based like powers. <laughs> I am the umami mancer. <laughs> Maybe it was the salt mages and the sugar wizards who put out that propaganda about MSG oh, being yeah. bad for you so they could weaken the power. The umami mancers. Yeah. And nowadays, fructomancers are in a very precarious spot because of aspartame and all that shit. And that's why they're pushing that. This shit causes cancer, we swear. I mean, see, this is what we are talking about before, about having different layers of undergrounds. Obviously, Monsanto is a fructomancer conspiracy at the highest level. Well, that and some corn-based agromancers. I've just imagined this campaign that, like, it's all these investigative journalists trying to break into Monsanto and find the secrets, and they finally make their way past all, like, the, the guards and the barbed wire and all this, and they get in there. And it, it, it's just, like, ridiculously on-the-nose Willy Wonka bullshit going on inside. <laughs> just, like, a free-flowing river of high-fructose corn syrup, that sort of shit. Oh, God. Oh, God. Don't fall out of the boat. Don't fall out of that boat. <laughs> So, speaking of imperialism, though, this is also the section where the book actually brings up magic outside of the West for the first time, specifically in the context of imperialism. Essentially, the most it has to say about Eastern occult traditions is that, man, a bunch of Westerners stole occult artifacts from the East and brought them over to Britain and shit. And so these artifacts actually had power. This is the take, which is like 5% woke. Yeah. Um, it's like the bare minimum. It's like, yes, we were bad. But there's no actual detail of like what the shit was. I want to know what was going on. Like I, in my campaign startups book, I had 
one campaign started suggesting, which was basically you're all in London, you're all from different like uh, native communities who've had their shit stolen. Like maybe someone's from maybe one of you is an Egyptian, one of you is like an Indian, and the whole purpose is to just raid the British Museum and take all this shit back. But to run a game like that, you have to have a kind of an idea of like you know, if you're running the game, I just say okay, each player can make up whatever they want because that's fine. But it would be nice if there was a bit more detail about who was being stolen from. I do like the explanation for it's like, all right, if all these uh, Eastern cultures have all this wacky occult shit, then why didn't they use that to defend themselves? And the explanation is they did. The Westerners also had wacky occult shit and they also had guns. That is true. That's obvious. That's a a good explanation. I have problems with the question. Yeah. The question itself is like... At what point in history have people ever used magic to defend themselves against? Like, it's like asking, why didn't the ancient Germanic tribes use magic to like resist the force of the Roman legions? Well, because like, magic is fucking unreliable. Yeah, you're not going to have your chief weirdos at the at the front. You're going to have your warriors. Like, magic is not a useful defense tool against anyone unless you're defending like an, an attic. For defending yourself, sure, it's nowhere near reliable enough, like you're saying, to be used in military tactics, no matter how much the DoD tries. If it, was, if it could be weaponized, it would have been weaponized 4,000 years ago. I mean, and it has been in the past, but it's also one of those things of it's so unreliable that the historical record is never going to be sure that, yeah, this is what happened. It might just look like a coincidence, but like you said, there's no such thing. Let's go into these magic schools because I think the magic schools are like giving the most flavor to me, right? There's the one that I like in particular called uh, Juvenomancy, youth-based magic. Yeah, that's a fun one, I think, actually. What's the paradox there, you think, though? Well, in my sort of headcanon on this, because it's inspired by Byron and Shelley, and I'm thinking like the kind of like young, like bad boy poets that exist in this time period, just YOLOing their way through life, uh, sacrificing your future years for current power. It sounds like it's kind of like a precursor to entropomancy in a way. Like, don't give a fuck about the future. We are young and wild and free. We'll do what we want. And I'm wondering if these guys are still around because any kind of youth-based magic, what were you, what are you going to do with a major charge? Of course, you're going to be staying young forever. But what if you have to keep yoloing for hundreds of years? Like you, you're always on the edge of just completely fucking yourself up, crashing your car, falling off, falling drunk off a bridge, and it's just the oldest grizzled and yet young-looking poets who are still around, and they're insane. It's kind of like Highlander, but they're all poets. All right, I can dig that. Except, you know, instead of doing fights, they're, like, playing games of chicken all across the globe. Yes. I would set a game like that. I wouldn't set it in the modern age. I'd, I'd set it in the 1950s during that whole, like, James Dean kind of era, like, Young and Free. But have them all be poets from the 19th century. Rebel without a cause. Yeah, rebel without yeah. a cause, but they're all poets. And they're all pretending to be 1950s, like, youths. It would be pretty fun. Every 20 years, they all convene on this one small American town. And just wreck shit with their risk contest. Yeah, like maybe they have to keep doing it in like a ritualized manner. That's what differentiates them from a tropomancy. Like if they want to maintain their youth, that maybe they can get an extra year of youth for some crazy action. Or if it's particularly risky, they could get like 10 years of youth. Or if you somehow take years of life off someone else, you get even more. I just like this idea of these like. 17 year olds in like black leather jackets with like the the crazy hairdos and they look like the exact same age but one of them was like your time is over old man 
<laughs> uh, see, I'm seeing that, but I'm imagining the player characters get involved with this because they're the like citizens of the town. And like, okay, one of the player characters ha- is like the current sweetheart of one of the immortals. And he's like telling her, like, yeah, I know the secrets to immortality. I can share them with you. But in that sort of uh, sleazy, uh, greaser way. I said, tell me more. Tell me more. Oh, fucking perfect. We also got Agapomancy, which is pretty standard. They have to hold parties, balls, and orgies. The taboo that they can never be completely alone. And I think that can be adapted to a modern school. Someone who has to keep partying and he can never just be by themselves. I don't think that would tie into like partying, though, nowadays. It'd be more like a social media thing. Where it's like, you can never log off. You have to post, always. That's a good point. But that's a, I think that's a different school. What I'm thinking of more of like someone who has to keep partying and like the sort of person who has to like the, the party's over so they have to go to like one of those daytime clubs or they have to go to a bar and like you don't have to go home but you can't stay here. No, you can't go home and you can't stay here either. So you have to find somewhere else to go. It definitely ties into like similar to Dipsomancy, but I think it's more about the like the party can't stop sort of thing. I could definitely see that sort of school surviving in the modern day. Maybe less well, no, nah, orgies are still viable, I think. But yeah, more tied in the clubbing and sort of the clubbing lifestyle. Just like you're so desperate, you drive into the suburbs and, and find like swingers party where everyone's like 60 years old. It's like, ah, I have to keep going, I keep partying. I mean, hey, you don't need to actually participate. You can just take from the buffet and watch. It's a shitty party, but it's still a party. If you can never be alone, like you always have to maintain this entourage of people around you. Drag these drugs along with you, all these people who are on various drugs. And of course, they'll drop off as they like, they're like, I have to go home now or pass out. So you have to get new ones all the time and your entourage just keeps growing. You cannot be alone. You have to have an entourage. You have to be going from party to party. That sounds horrible, but it could be magical. Well, from the sound of things, it definitely is. So Hyamancy is a bit obvious. Oh, you get it from blood. Yeah, it definitely existed, but it's pretty obvious. What's the paradox there? You must never drink the common blood. What if, especially if you tied Hemomancy in with Hierarchomancy, imagine if it was like a vampiric kind of adept school where you drink blood from someone, right? And every time you step up in class of the person that you drink blood from, you get a sig. But then you, if you stay there, you can only get minors. And so in order to, like, to level up, you have to put yourself into a position where you can drain blood from progressively higher people in the hierarchy until eventually you reach the fucking king or the queen and that's your major church what if it's a reverse vampire situation you don't get charges from drinking blood you get charges from having people drink your blood that definitely exists as various forms of depth magic well that that's the whole idea of like various forms of witchcraft involve putting menstrual blood in people's food to control them and stuff like the servants in like 17 80s France putting blood into the food of like Marie Antoinette and stuff. I can see that. Playing a game that was just before the French Revolution and you're all angry servants. Oh, well, yeah, just set during the affair of the poisons. You're set. Plenty of weird occult bullshit going on there. What could be another fun thing is that sort of spin on it is all these servants that are tired because their lord keeps on forcing them to eat the blood porridge. Yeah, that makes sense. I would think that like. In terms of like late feudalism that still exists in this time period, you're going to have some weird high-class uh, people in positions of lordship and such which would charge up by feeding their peasants because it should be the other way around. So instead, you're like making your peasants eat your blood porridge. Yeah, that's a good... I like that. 
Hierarchomancy, I could see being pretty good if there's a fun enough paradox and taboo there. I really, I like the idea of combining it with like Hemomancy because each of them by themselves is obvious. Combining them makes it interesting. I mean, Hemomancy is explicitly about like noble blood and shit already. So Hierarchomancy ends up feeling a bit redundant in that way. Though maybe it's more tied in with class than like nobility and noble blood. I don't know. So now we just need to combine the Marquis de Sade Scatomancy with Terminomancy, mm. where you have to like shit on the borders of countries that you expand. I mean, blood and soil. <laughs> blood and soil. Yes, perfect. Yeah, a lot of these, I like the description. I like mixing them up. I like the idea of thinking like what was important in the time period and coming up with IDEP schools that made sense. And some of these work with that. I just wish it was more developed. But this again, this is a preliminary draft. So, heading into the 20th century, where are we at? It sort of jumps over the fucking 19th century, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. There is one paragraph about the influence of immigrants into Australia and the influence on the underground, which I think is important. That's something we discussed a little bit when we were talking about on our Australia episode. Yeah, I was surprised to see that in this book. As far as like the late 19th century, there are a couple of missing things I was surprised by in the early 20th century, like Tynes in his notes. Comments that, hey, you don't really see a lot of the Theosophy and Blavatsky-Crowley shit mentioned, which is, in a way, refreshing, because that's such an easy thing to reach for when you're dealing with this sort of thing. Yeah, but just not having the 19th century at all seems a bit strange. Actually, I'm wrong. There is talk, because it, it's just buried in with it's talking about imperialism, and it's sort of clear. There's not a clear division here between when they're talking about early modern era and then industrial era. Yeah, the ordering is weird. It goes into the history of the sleepers a lot, which is interesting. On how that ties in World War Two in strange ways. There's a couple of things that are interesting, but kind of obvious. I like tying Kellogg's health regime with the pedoromancy. That makes sense to me. Well, I'm pretty sure that's where uh, Pravaturgy comes from, actually. Ah, uh, so yes. It's a very similar thing, except just putting a spin on it. There's references to like the various uh, ethnic gangs that existed in early American cities. And see, that's a lot of fun when you have like these ethnic gangs in areas like New York and stuff, and they're all bringing their own magical traditions from their respective countries, and that's tying in with the gang wars. That's fun. I want to hear more about that. Especially when you consider what the Sleepers did to New York in the 50s. They just destroyed the magic. Why'd they do that? There must be a reason. There must have been insane shit going on there before the 1950s. Because the reason they haven't done anything like that since. Like If that was something easy to do, they would have done it to many cities. They did it once to New York that we know of, and they must have had a really good reason to do it. I would not at all be surprised if that ties into it. So having a UA campaign in the 30s and 40s where maybe like the player characters are various exiles from a bunch of different ethnic gangs with their own uh, mystic traditions that have come in in various ways. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Like misfits, misfits from all different groups. A bunch of misfits so you can have a more diverse character group of both magic styles and just background and it also puts them in sort of a uh, middle ground that allows them to operate with all these other gangs on more negative but equal terms at least right yeah like there, there's no there's not one side at least at the start that you've thrown in your lot with well, if you were going to throw your lot in, another way to do it would be to have a an established organized crime group that was finding themselves being outcompeted and muscled out by a new group, like how the Russian mob started to outcompete 
La Casa Nostra in like the 80s and stuff. And that sort of shit happened earlier in history with different groups coming in. Uh, even the whole like nativists versus Irish gangs and things like that, that was part of that dynamic. So if there was a, imagine there's a group, a crime organization that was being muscled out and they were so desperate they were willing to turn to a bunch of adepts to try and get them out of it. I can see that. Like, they're so desperate that they're willing to talk to the wizards. So World War II goes about how I'd expect, honestly. You know, there's a bit of talking about mediums being brought in by the Allies and shit. And, of course, the classic dual society sort of shit, which it doesn't go into too much, which I appreciate. I think this is all done better in the... Um... What was it? What's the... Wraith. Wraith, the Great War. This much better. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward shit. And this is the same thing with the 50s. Underground goes a bit more underground. Ties in with the beatniks a bit. There's some fun stuff with the KGB taking out a couple cabals, which is kind of fun. There's some good campaign hooks there. There is some mentions of talking about the increased number of female occultists coming in the time period i did appreciate that but like i never got the vibe that much that they were lacking in female occultists before that yeah neither do i like, i think that generally adept environments adepts have been more egalitarian in the society around them i wouldn't say egalitarian more more tolerant that's that, that's essentially egalitarian. <laughs> well tolerant in the sense of we don't like these belief systems but we're so few that we're willing to work with them. Line here, which I disagree with, says that previously the underground, like most things, had been dominated by men. They were the ones, after all, who mostly had the education, the money, and the social freedom necessary to participate. And I'm like, you don't need education, money, or social freedom to practice magic. That's the point of magic. Like you said, 5% woke. I would agree with you mostly there, except for authentic thaumaturges. I think that it, those skew wealthier for a I agree. And if it, were, if it was talking about authentic thaumaturges, that would track for me. Like, if it was the 1920s, you're starting to see these uh, women coming out and being like, we want to be authentic thaumaturges too, and the older authentic thaumaturges are being like, blah, 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 women? Blah, blah, blah. That would make sense. And you could tie it in with the suffragette movement, first wave of feminism. You could even tie it in with, like, 19th century, like, female authors. Hell, even the real like beginnings of the neo-pagan movement. The real beginnings, like that early period, yes, like the 1920s era, totally. I think that, yeah, obviously in a sort of game, you would have more... Having the occult mainstream having more women changes things. I think the occult underground had always had plenty of women, but the occult mainstream, maybe not. And Blavatsky, say what you will about her, really broke a glass ceiling there. Good for her. I do like a couple of references. To, like, when he gets into specifics that aren't just, like... The specifics are good a lot of the time. Yeah. yeah. Like, the, the Boston puppets are kind of interesting. Kind of obvious. I wish I'd known this when I ran my 1928 game. It talks about the European underground becoming briefly obsessed with the conception of a perfect child. That's fun. I don't do that. I like any kind of specific, like, this is what happened at the time. This is what was going on. They mentioned that these two lesbian women end up having a child, and the child is perfectly normal, except for the fact that it was sired by two lesbian women. Otherwise, that's it. Just a normal child. I love those two women as characters when this kid is, like, five years old. They're raising this child, and they're, like, in the back of their minds, like, oh, man, I hope this is one of the indigo children. And it's just like, no, no, he's a, he's a bouncing baby boy. When the, I notice that parts that I like are getting into details of what happened in, specifically in undergrounds at certain times and places. Those are our hooks. The specifics are evocative. 
That's that's good writing advice, regardless. What I would think, like, if you were to do something like this, like a historical UA sort of source book kind of thing, I would rather it be something along the lines of the campaign starter sets. But each campaign starter set is a different time period and gives a rundown of this is Rome twenty AD, and these are the major players, and this is what's going on. Sort of how the better uh, historical Cthulhu source books are. Yeah, that would be cool because that would be more interesting. You could get into more detail, see more things more finely grained. You could show, not tell, differences in like how the occult underground changed in different time periods by just showing the, how magic is and how it acts and how people act and what people care about. I think that would be a better way of doing it. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. A few things like it talks about the 1930s, the Depression, another good era. It says fucking that Dipsomancy came out of Prohibition. Bullshit. That's thousands of years old. Perhaps modern Dipsomancy came out of Prohibition. Sure, sure. I'll take that because of change in how culture views alcohol. But Dipsomancy is paradox and it's taboo. We aren't even really coached in the cultural views of alcohol too much. It definitely comes from pre-prohibition like anti-alcohol sentiment that was very popular the very like middle class christian alcohol is causing a lower class men to beat their wives sort of shit yes exactly and it's that sort of symbolic that cultural resonance that burst tipsomancy and of course i think it predates prohibition by a bit probably late 19th century modern tipsomancy but prohibition and it's it's going to run a prohibition game which i almost did once you got to have like the making of alcohol-based magic, like moonshine wizards, moonshine alchemists. That's a whole different story. Like, There's getting magic from drinking alcohol, getting magic from making alcohol, getting magic from getting other people drunk. Any kind of addiction or substance-based magic can be seen in many different ways. And again, it talks about the Depression, and it talks about a calling man who enslaves the dust-caked revenants of Oklahoma, which kind of makes sense. But this whole area, it sounds like... Did you ever watch Carnivale? I did not. You should. It's really, really good. It's a traveling carnival in the Great Depression era, which is filled with occult bullshit. There's two seasons of it, and you'll hate me for recommending it to you at the end of the second season because they never made any more. Uh, but know that going in because it was a it was a fucking tragedy, and I don't forgive you, HBO. I don't forgive you. So after the Depression, we go into the 40s and World War II and stuff. Phobomancy, the big thing here. I dug that conceptually. I'd like to see more go into that. I like the idea that it comes from horror movies. I like the idea that artificial fear. Specifically, like, very early avant-garde horror movies, like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari sort of shit. If you define phobomancy as being based on fear that's not real, and there was lots of Nazi phobomancers, I wonder if the taboo was the phobomancer couldn't actually do what he was making you afraid he was going to do. If he was drawing power off you, like, he's like, he knocks on your door in the middle of the night and you think he's going to have you taken away, he can't actually do that. That's how he gets his power. So phobomancy is about making people afraid rather than being afraid yourself? Or maybe it's a bit of both. Phobomancy is about, yeah, like creating fear. Well, I think you can have a bit of both too, because often fear is created by people who are scared themselves and it ends up being a cycle that way, right? That's true. Maybe another taboo is you can't actually show fear. But that seems a bit obvious to me. I prefer the idea like, uh, it's all like your privateurgy, right? It's about keeping that tension going. And it can never end it. The anxiety. Like horror movies, right? Like right at the moment where the strings start getting shrill and you see the knife in the frame 
and the shadow of it looming over the teenagers fucking in their car or whatever. It goes in with that whole, like you've seen plenty of movies where maybe the Jews are hiding out somewhere and they get caught. It's the Phobomancer would go in, find them, scare the fuck out of them, and then leave and not tell anyone. He'd try to scare the fuck out of them for as long as he can. Because if they learn that he can't actually do anything, maybe that's a taboo for him, or he's fucked. He can't draw power off them. But then he's free to actually do something, because he's pissed. Now, that's an interesting dynamic there. And also, it ties into the whole, how many Nazi phobomancers were picked up in Operation Paperclip, how many Nazi phobomancers ended up in the States working for the CIA in the 50s, how many phobomancers were able to, like, draw power off the Red Scare and the fear of the atomic bomb and things like that. Uh, I know the KGB had an equivalent to Operation Paperclip. I don't know its name off the top of my head. But yeah, you'd be seeing that in a lot of places. Obermancy may not have started. Like, it says it starts with, like, German horror films, and I kind of like it starting from that. But you could easily have it starting in, like, pre-Soviet Russian Imperial Okhrana and any kind of secret police. They could use Obermancy. Something, something fear is the oldest emotion of humanity. So, 50s... A lot of post-World War II shit. There is some fun stuff of how the Red Scare tied into the occult underground. And like I mentioned earlier, so the KGB and the uh, CIA investigating a bunch of cabals thinking that they're looking for capitalists or communists and just finding wizards. There's also the idea, like I've read things about the KGB, theories about the KGB spreading stories about flying saucers in in order to make people trust the government less. Phobomancy, right there. Yeah. Or, yeah, I could also see an ad school that actually gains power from making people distrust authority. I think that there, in the 1950s section, there needs to be more beatniks. There needs to be more hidden occultism in white picket fence, white suburbs, because that's the whole period of the Levittown thing. It's dangerous territory, but it's like I have that one of them in my book. It's like a li- living in a Levittown and being practicing witches and things like that. People think that, oh, guy's wife, her secret is that she has an eating disorder and is popping pills. No, she's just a witch. Who's has an eating disorder and is popping pills? Some of them are, some of them aren't. A McCarthyism would be big in this era, like any kind of the House Un-American Activities Committee, anything to do with that and combining it with magic. I do like the detail about the KGB funding the English underground. That's interesting, yeah, it's interesting. Who were apparently giving themselves names like the high labor executive and claiming three quarters of the cabinet as secret members. I I do like that, a cult that is... Just fleecing both sides of the Cold War. There's an interesting parallel that I've been reading about recently that as a problem in China, this is something that actually James Palmer was posting about, I believe. Chinese intelligence has a, a bad track record of being able to tell who in the US political scene is mainstream and who is fringe. So they'll end up like spending a lot of time and energy trying to cultivate the LaRoucheites, for example, because they think that they're, the LaRouche movement is a lot bigger than it actually is. And so this is a kind of a parallel to that where you have real world, like secular, uh, mundane intelligence operations trying to find groups that they think could influence a geopolitical enemy and ending up funding wizards or supporting wizards because they don't know what the fuck they're doing. And also there's things like the CIA supporting certain kinds of abstract and impressionist art because socialist realism is the opposite. Funding postmodernism to fight against Soviet modernism. What if it's 1960 whatever 
and all the players are part of a, a government audit team who has to go out and figure out where all this CIA money has been going. And so you're wandering out into the occult underground. These accountants who have no idea what's about to happen to them. See, I was imagining a case full of CIA bills from the 50s as a MacGuffin and that's been stashed somewhere by some like old school charger in the city where the game takes place. And all of the factions are pivoting around this briefcase full of cash because that's always a fun MacGuffin. You spend the whole game thinking it's secret CIA money. You finally, get at the end, you open it up, and it's just all these rubles. You're like, oh, shit, it was AGV the whole time. That was the commies. This money doesn't even mean anything. They're just, they're just food certificates. It's just little red books. <laughs> <laughs> oh! I do like some things. Like There are some notes from Tyrants about how he they didn't want to have like secret fucking adept divisions of the CIA or whatnot. It's like, it's, they're not reliable. No, they're not reliable. I like the idea of persanomances becoming agents, but again, I don't... Like... I do maintain that adepts are very well suited to being compromised by a clandestine organization, just through the charging structure. It's very easy to turn an adept to a, into a spy by setting things up so that they have a lot of guaranteed charges at their disposal. Now I want to run a character. It's like 1960s. Oh, 1950s or 1960s, and I'm a secret agent persona mancer who works for the CIA and for the KGB and for Mossad and French <laughs> intelligence and British intelligence, and I have opportunities for each one. I'm not actually working. I'm not working for anyone. I'm like a quintuple agent, but not real. I'm just just doing the missions. Uh, yeah, that's good. I do like some of the stuff from the 60s. I mean, a lot of it's pretty obvious, like psychedelia. Usual shit, but there is one group I like a lot called the Funky Color Brothers, which are just a Scooby-Doo middle-class teenager gang full of adepts. But their group is constantly changing as old members die. That is pretty good. That's a good point. I like that. That's good detail. Like, I think the 1960s is actually an important era for modern uh, Unknown Armies because there are all those old hippie wizards still around. Well, not just that. Uh, Chaos Magic came out of the 60s. Exactly. A lot of stuff happened then, which still affects today, and even more so if you're talking about like the 1990s era, Unknown Army's zeitgeist. It draws a lot from the 60s. I don't really like how it sort of kind of jumps over the 70s and says like, ah, oh, it's the 80s and people are tired of the supposed love, harmony, and general sappiness of the 1970s. I'm like, no, that's the 1960s, dude. 1970s were when it started to go to shit, when it started to get horrible, but that's when you get... Um, like, well, isn't um, fucking The Warriors is from the 1970s, yeah. right? Yeah. That's a, that's an occult underground movie. Come on. Oh, yeah. That's what I want to do. <laughs> that whole thing is full of archetypes, of course. It's adapting the story of the Odyssey into <laughs> a movie about gang wars. I do like the detail about the Comte de Saint-Germain being like a benevolent overlord of the San Francisco underground during the time period. What is it, Saint-Germain? We don't know if it was actually well, him. sure, but that's a fun figure to have at the top pulling strings. And just San Francisco during that time period has a lot going on. It would make a great setting for a UA game. In that setting, I would run him as similar to Vedinari in the Discworld books. Like this disinterested, terrifying figure in charge of everything. While chaos is going on beneath him. I think that would be that would be cool. Yeah, it's sort of like, um, again, it reminds me of, what's her name? Madam something from Over the Edge. Again, you didn't read it, but they have a similar a figure who's in charge of everything who's kind of terrifying. Uh, sort of a lady of pain for San Francisco. 
yeah, I guess it starts talking about like network TV and stuff. We go went into this a bit on our first episode. Yeah, no, we we went into this a bit with UHF. They do mention this fun thing that we were just talking about a bit ago with this uh, group of XMIT dukes, Ping, who were able to improvise rituals out of personal computers, and they just got taken out by the sleepers as soon as they started trying to broadcast all that shit. You know how I like I'm interested in like online magic, yeah. in general. Like I think it's very old. I'm thinking old DARPAnet shit, and when the university's got access to it, the magic on the internet started then. This is the time, the 1980s, when you're going to start to get some weird Usenet craziness, people doing magical rituals on Commodore 64s, all kinds of nonsense. And these are XMIT jukes. All the CCRU bullshit. Yep. That sort of stuff is really great. I can see why he wrote it this way, but he's like, they tried to show it off and then the sleepers killed them. I'm like, oh, come on. I want to know more. I want to know more. And it pretty much ends there. It goes into the 1990s, but it's like, yeah, communism just fell. We're in the end of history. We don't really know where things are going to go from here. And look, turns out that history was just hiding the whole time. Because it's like 20 years old, every this book is like listening to the song, like, We Didn't Start the Fire, where it goes through all the historical events, and then it stops in the 80s, and oh, wait, there's more. Come on, keep going. <laughs> you didn't even get to 9-11 yet. Come on. And... Yeah, that's pretty much it. It goes into the mystery cults and there's a bit more detail given into the religions and the document after the timeline, but we basically went over all those. Well, yeah, the stuff after this is kind of beyond the scope, but this is the stuff that would have been included to pad out or make this like into an actual source book. I think this would have been a lot longer if it was developed fully. Agreed. It's like most of the spy books of the time period would have a bunch of things that weren't necessarily fully related to the topic, like hush-hush and lawyers, guns and money and stuff. They always had extra adepts and stuff. Yeah, you'd have like artifacts and rituals. And I'm sure that all those adept schools that get mentioned in the timeline would have actually been standard up and shit, right? A lot of this stuff in here, it doesn't seem very necessary now, but probably could have been good to have as a source book for 2e when so many people were like well, how do i fucking play this game i don't understand maybe some of this information yeah. would have been quite useful at the time i don't think it would have helped that much to be honest because like very little of it actually focuses on what's actually happening with like the sort of player group style factions right like there's a couple ideas thrown out there but there's nothing really facing the players of the gm of how do i turn this into a game and how do I guide my players through all this weird shit? Yeah, that's true. I always reach for the Call of Cthulhu comparison because UA does fundamentally pull a lot of its ideas and is in a lot of ways a reaction to Call of Cthulhu. Call of Cthulhu is not designed where players are having fun using the magic. That's a very powerful thing to do and it gives them a big edge on top of everyone else in their environment. And that's ultimately, it's a hard thing to run for. Mage is even worse in this aspect from what I've heard where just the magic system is so potentially powerful that players can very easily break the game entirely. Yeah. So it's really important to give the GM guidelines for how to run that shit, and I really don't think that this book does that too much. It just gives you a few neat campaign hooks. And that's kind of like what it was meant to do. I just wish there was more hooks. There needs to be more hooks. Yeah, yeah. Especially like the first half. Like Things get better once you go into the Renaissance and afterwards, I think. But before then, it's like, okay, this is all the most obvious shit that I could have come up with myself, with a couple gems like Isaac Newton. As you were saying before about, yeah, it was pre-internet, and it's easy for us to sit here on our, our thrones made of Wikipedia, just be like, 
poo-pooing this book that James Garber well, wrote like we said, 20 years a, ago. A bunch of this shit is straight up in the secret teachings of all ages, which, as mentioned earlier, that was written in the fucking 20s. Yeah, but, like, for 17-year-old Johnny Occultface, who's at his game store in 1999, Maybe he doesn't know that book, and he just wants to get another Unknown Army. Well, book. no, what he does is he waits a year until he's in college and then gets reads all the occult books they have in the fucking library. He doesn't know that then, does he? No, you're right. Or he does what we all do. He dates a goth chick for two years. There you go. That's what's been replaced by Wikipedia. That's how you get initiated into the mysteries. That does make sense. Like, that's a good identity. Dated a goth chick for two years. Substitutes for knowledge. <laughs> Well, okay, so I'm thinking we've gone over this in as much detail as I think it needs to be. So yeah, we're going to be taking the caller and then switch to talking about campaign ideas throughout history. Stay tuned, listeners. It's, it's, it's the complaint I get again and again and again, but that people don't understand. Faith in God and the afterlife, that's great, but it's just faith. It, that's just what it is. And so we can't be sure that there is a hell. So we have to build it here now so that people are properly punished in the way they justly deserve. And if, if there is indeed a hell in the afterlife, it's fine. Uh, then it'll just double up. The important thing is that we know justice is carried out. And welcome back, listeners. So, since we just spent all this time discussing the rather uh, rather biased timeline for the occult underground, we figure it's only fair to end off with a discussion on how exactly to run game in some of these parts of history, both covered in the timeline and all the shit that was outside of it. Now... Torm, you ran a game in a historical setting, didn't you? Indeed, and I wanted to run a game in a historical setting because the GM responsibility had passed to me after the last campaign wrapped up, and I thought I want to do something different. And so initially I gave the players some choices. I don't want to like force them to play in a particular time or place that they don't have any interest in. But I also don't want to be like, choose any time in history and let's discuss it. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's a bit of a dangerous blank check to give the players there. Exactly. Instead, I prepared four or five choices. And the choices were late 1920s Berlin, early 1950s Japan, either late Soviet Russia or early Russian Federation. And I think the other one was like, a, I was thinking like 1900s, 1910s sort of era. So they were like, tried to be varied enough. I know that other people, much more world-renowned GMs than me, like Kenneth Height, they've done Anonami's game set in like the 19th century and like in the frontier West and things like that. And I can see why people like Kenneth Height, who have a lot of knowledge of that era, would do that. But for me, I just I'm pretty sure Kenneth Height just has a lot of knowledge about like any anything in general. Yeah, anything <laughs> in general. I tend to think of Anonami's game as being set in like at least the 20th century. There's something about modernity and how it interacts with the occult underground that makes Anonami's 
different than just like a urban fantasy game. I don't know. It's, you know, it's when I think unknown armies, I think people have cars and newspapers at least. It's called postmodern magic. That's the tagline of the fucking game. So it makes sense to be dealing with the postmodern era. Hell, we're talking modernity. That goes back to depending on who you're talking to, like you know, the 1500s. Yeah, exactly. When when does modernity start? What's the difference between early and late modernity? It's a woolly historical issue. Like the good thing about starting it in like the 1920s is that's when you first got Dada. When it's when you first got like the first stirrings of postmodern philosophical thought. When modernity, modernism, was being challenged. Problem with the postmodernism is people talk about it as if it's all the same thing. When like postmodernism in architecture is not the same thing as postmodernism in philosophy and usually when i'm thinking of unknown armies and how magic and philosophy and human society interact i'm thinking of like the philosophical side of things about the the idea that no you can't just put everything in discrete separate categories you can't just categorize the world into an easily understood and taught taxonomy it's more complicated than that is that's how i think of it at base and that's how it's applied to magic that's why in my sort of world view of like the history of magic especially in the modern era, like say the 18th and 19th century, I think of it, it probably worked more in terms of schools of thought. The difference went from we know the truth and then later it was I know the truth. If you know what I mean? No, I get you. It was sort of this uh, atomization that happened leading up to what we see as the current era of charges and whatnot. Everyone having their own little idiosyncratic explanation for why their magic works rather than it being coached in the religious slash occult traditions of the day, whether it be hermeticism or otherwise. One of the things that makes a lot of sense to me in the timeline we were looking at is the way it does link the occult history of the West with hermeticism, because that's pretty much how it works, unless you're talking like certain pagan traditions. But, and that explains a lot for sort of the seeds of the early occult underground that you see in the West. But as we lead in more of the postmodern era and our increasingly globalized world, you start pulling all this shit in from other areas and people be like, oh, wait. So you're, you're telling me that there's agromancers in China too? And they have very similar looking spells? Okay. Well, there has to be some explanation for this, right? Or there's like an agromancer in China all the way across the world, who has the same spell as you, but the guy I stayed over has completely different farm magic for yeah, some reason. Exactly. So it ends up being like, oh, wait, it's not that some weird version of hermeticism or biblical tradition or whatever is right. It's some other weird fucking explanation that I need to come up with on my own. It could, do, well, it could be as simple as parallel evolution. Like yeah. the same magical solution occurs to a wizard on a different continent, but it's because he's also a farmer. He's also working with magic. It just makes a weird kind of symbolic logic sense. The big shift for me with the Occult Underground is, one, there's atomization that you bring up. But the other thing is, again, that sort of looking at magic through a postmodern lens of not taking it as like as something that has like an inherent meaning you're looking at like magic in the meta sense you're seeing all these different agromancer traditions that have a lot of overlap but a lot of differences and then you're trying to see what brings all of them together and you're realizing fundamentally it's just believing in them hard enough well yeah that's that's the the rub of adept magic it's i'm making my own fucking philosophical school <laughs>
All right. So of those options you presented to your players, which one did they end up going with? I ended up going with Berlin 1928, uh, which I was happy with. Yeah, that's a great period of history when I came in. It's very interesting because it's very dynamic. Uh, each of the periods I chose was meant to be a period of disruption, social, economic, and cultural disruption, just to like tap the other ones. Like Obviously, late Soviet Russia and then early Russian Federation, obvious case. And I read a book, Nothing is True, Everything is Permitted. And it is a very good description of how it's actually written about the early 2000s, but it's still in that zeitgeist of the way the 90s just upended every assumption people had about life and how to go through. And there's lots of good descriptions about how people suddenly had so much money, especially like young gangsters and upcoming models and things. But because they just come from the Soviet era, money didn't even seem real. Like nothing seemed real because everything that once had been stayed and ossified and just the way things were had changed so everything had a dreamlike quality to people's lives even though there was violence and exploitation and all these things but people could be detached from it because it was so dreamlike and so different from what they grew up with people could say the same thing about these days to be honest yeah i mean truth is balkanizing oh again also um, japan in the 1950s or late 40s i chose because it, it's just the imperial Japanese society had been crushed, and that was a totalizing society that tried to like change the way people thought from school throughout their whole lives, right? They had like state orphanages, or people were growing, like raised by the state and stuff. And even then, that society was a relatively young society because it was only 100 years since the Meiji Revolution when the isolationist policy had fallen against uh, Western colonial encroachment. And at that time, it was the Americans had won. They were like walking around, swaggering around, and their cultural influences were coming in, music and things like that. And to me, it's a perfect time for like all kinds of crazy magic schools and adept groups and desperate people to rise up. Yeah, that's an environment where you're seeing a very different spiritual belief systems mixing together and interacting with each other in a very interesting way. Yes. It's not just like a modern society colliding with a traditional society because that traditional society had already been replaced by a different version of modernity which had been defeated by western capitalist democracy and people had to deal with that on a philosophical and a personal level and that's a perfect time to be like look at what i can do with this fucking magic shit yeah yeah no exactly but they ended up going with weimar berlin and that is a like you said uh there's a lot of upheaval going on during that period and Lots of stuff for players to poke at. So, what exactly was their objective here? What did the players bring to the table? How did you get them invested into this setting in the first place? I just brought in another idea that I thought would be really good in lots of different settings is the idea of making uh, an occult movie. The good thing about trying to make an occult movie, we've discussed this before, but I've often thought there's just so many different ways you can use that just by changing the setting, like making a magical movie in Hollywood is going to be very different from making a magical movie in like Nollywood in like Nigerian film industry but both could work in different ways and there both could be different reasons why would you would use magic to make a movie so the idea was that they wanted to use an occult movie that would create a magical democracy in which people who had access to secret powers could start voting for things that would affect the world. And I think kind of the implication of that was 
things are a bit crazy right now. We magic people should really be in charge behind the scenes. So it sounds like then what you're going with is that the player characters had no idea about the just fucking terrible path that Germany was about to go down. Oh, no, of course not. Because if I'm going to set a game at a certain time period, unless I'm messing with time travel crap or like destiny or anything like that, unless I'm messing with that, I'm just going to be like the year 1928. That's now. You don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. Of course you don't. So don't bring too much of your player knowledge in because we might not be in the same timeline. I don't know yet. We've just started. So I actually think that you can do a lot with that Destiny thing that you brought up where essentially you throw players into just before a really shitty part of history and then use magic as some sort of explanation for why they know that things are supposed to go down this way. Sure, you can do that. And then just make the objective be, all right, change this. Sure, that's a fine choice, but you don't have to. No, you don't have to. That's a point. Like, I didn't really want to. I wanted to keep it more loosey-goosey and just see what happened and see what they did to things. But yeah, it, it would be also a very obvious thing to be like, yeah, 1928. If you're going to bring in those elements of, like, the omens of the war to come and things like that, which aren't even necessarily magical. I mean, that's just people being aware of the zeitgeist and being like, this is bad, guys. Yeah, one of your buddies is talking about how this... uh Hitler guy is bad news, and they keep seeing him in their dreams just doing some real nasty shit. Your objective is to make sure that he remains in jail as long as possible. And your buddy is Salvador Dali, and Hitler is super sexy for him. (laughs) Oh yeah, great, perfect, perfect. A good thing about this time period as well is it's easy to just strip mine ideas from classic Call of Cthulhu adventures, just just the in terms of the setting. Yeah. Yeah. Hell, they just came out with a source book for I this know. exact yep. setting. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I've got it. I've only read it. It came out too late for me to use uh, it at the time, but it wasn't so late that it hadn't been announced. And so I'm just like, God uh, damn it. I wish <laughs> I had this book. This would be perfect. So how much did your players know about this setting before you dropped them into it? Not a huge amount. Enough, you know, like a a general educated person's idea. So you didn't have anyone that was like super into Weimar history? No. How did you get them super invested in that enough to play like this long-term game in the first place? Well, the first thing I did was just making the corkboard. And whenever we're making corkboard using pictures and things from a time period, right? Just the act of looking through them and choosing them and thinking, what could this be? And building it together, that naturally creates a bit of buy-in and it's not a huge amount of like initial intellectual investment but it's just enough that things start to come together in a way like even looking at pictures and looking up things like that it's enough to be like oh yeah i remember this this they had this at this time period and you can throw things in the advantage of like having unknown army's characters is because they're so self-obsessed and weird they don't actually have to know that much about the world they're in because like, it's, it makes sense that they are not aware of something because they're too busy thinking about whatever crazy obsession they have. When running like a historical game, one of the key things that people are worried about is like, all oh, right, shit, what if one of my players knows way more about the historical period than I do? And there's a few ways you can get around that. Personally, I'm not a strong believer in dividing uh, meta-knowledge from character knowledge. I think that if you have a player who knows a lot about either the setting historically or fictionally, 
than having their character have some sort of justification for why they know a lot about that is generally a good idea. Sure. It's like, it's the idea of like, you don't have to outrun the monster, you just have to outrun the, the slowest guy. Outrun your friend. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. As long as you can keep ahead of your players, or you can bring in things that make the real world or history not matter so much because you're dealing with other stuff. Like, especially if you're dealing with crazy occult underground shit, that's not the stuff that was going to be written down in the historical record. Like what yeah. weirdos like did what occult ceremony secretly under cover of night. That's not known. Yeah, yeah. Were there any snags that you ran in while running this game? As far as like keeping to history and such. As things developed, because things got crazier. Yeah, they they did their first objective, which was to make the movie, and they installed yeah. a magical democracy. But how it was going to work was. It's basically like having a major charge to do one thing. But instead of like, I use my major charge to do this, you use your major charge to pose a question to the woke occult community and they can vote yay or nay on your question. Okay, interesting. And so how that worked as an objective in a way was like once they'd done that, once they already had that, so I'm like, okay, each of you has a major charge's worth of power, but you need to get this past in the the direct magical democracy that you guys have set up through this movie but the problem was that pretty much anyone who was anyone had any kind of mystical power could access this direct democracy but they just didn't know about it the problem is they wanted more people to know so that there's enough people enough of a quorum that something can get passed but they don't want the crazy nazis to know there's people there's groups that they'd rather gerrymander their way out of knowing about this (laughs) right but they still need enough people to pass a bill, basically, so that they can exert them. I dig that. I dig that. That's fun because it's like, all right, we're trying to make a more democratic system for magic. But, oh, fuck, we need to worry about these assholes. The classic problem with democracy that you have to deal with. In the early game, a lot of it was figuring out how to make a film, going and getting funding, getting a production crew things like that, securing some high-tech talky technology, getting the right voice for to send the resonant occult message to the German public, things like that. So it was that, that sort of thing, that early part of the game was a bit more technical, but that was fun too, you know, like getting using magical or non-magical ways to solve relatively mundane problems for a an occult objective. That's a fun process. And then the next stage up from that was more abstract more high like crazy and then dealing with higher levels of power but also much higher levels of risk and things like that yeah so the thing that worries me about running historical games is sort of like getting the stuff about how the everyday works right so like i ran a uh call cthulhu game set in like 1920s new york for a while right and i had a lot of fun it was enjoyable great setting But what always tripped me up would be like, what's the phone system like? It's especially kind of tricky to deal with when you're dealing with big and dense urban environments that are very on sort of the cutting edge of the recent technology. Yeah. And I just frankly don't know about what the tech of the period is like. And unfortunately, it's kind of difficult to find good sources covering that sort of thing. And time period, super easy to find history covering you know, the political upheavals of the time, wars, etc. But the question of, all right, how does someone get from one end of the city to the other and how fast can they do it in this year 
that's hard to find. How do you deal with this? Well, one of the advantage of this sort of setting, especially Germany in this era when it just lost World War One, and things were a bit shit. And the thing about the early 20th century is the fact that there was such a mix in the tech that people were using. And even up to like World War II, people think about like the Nazis driving around in tanks when so much of the German war machine at the time was dependent on horses and carts dragging things around. So there was a definite mix between very traditional tech and whatever modern tech was around and had been developed and could be afforded. So you can sort of just go loosey-goosey with it. It really depends on how pedantic your players are going to be. And when it's a question like, how fast can we get across town? I don't think it matters. What matters is, do you need to get across town before some other guy? Is there like a reason you need to quickly get across town? Does it matter? If it matters, then we you can judge it. It's like, okay, you've got a horse and cart and they've got a motorcycle. You're going to have to find a way to figure out how to get faster, things like that. It's a problem-solving thing, but the point isn't the technicality of it. The point is, what is the dramatic problem that you need to solve? I agree there. The tricky problem there is that, especially when you're dealing with like a big urban sandbox like that, those problems can very easily pop up in ways that you, the GM, don't really see coming. It's sometimes you just need to figure out how to make a fair ruling that the players can accept. You, sometimes you just be honest, be like, all right, so I don't know a whole lot about how this would work. Can we take five while I do some quick emergency research? For me, it wasn't very common that I had to like stop the game to research something. Uh, I think it might have happened at least once or so, but like, it wasn't a common thing, especially if it was like normal day-to-day shit. I had a lucky break in the fact that one of my player characters chose to play a character that didn't like modern technology that refused to use the telephone that's <laughs> always very helpful even looking at the characters that people made it wasn't that actually that hard for them to come up with character concepts that made sense like for example i've got one guy yeah, he called himself theodore siegfried and the concept was basically german hp lovecraft also <laughs> right. World War one veteran and nice. instantly you're like okay i get a general idea of what that is but is he still an Anglophile, or is he a Teutonophile? Teutonophile. All right. Of course. It's important, because Lovecraft hated the crafts. Hated yes. them. I had three characters. There was the German H.P. Lovecraft, and the second one was Gay Trust Fund Cryptomancer. All right. That works. His highest identity was gay in the 1920s, and it made complete sense. It was like, yeah, that's you could do lots of that. It's, it substitutes for, like, lie and secrecy. And that ties in great with the uh, magic school of choice. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great character. And the last character that uh, threw a bit of a wrench in the wheels, but was still good, was just the concept was wants to have sex with a cartoon. <laughs> it makes sense. <laughs> time period. It's well, so they ended up, we ended up inventing this character called Little Lola, who was like a, a bunny girl, but in that old school like Betty Boop style you know black and white and and it was just a creepy very modern type character that man is an innovator right there that man is on the cutting edge of the 20th century that's right that's right so it made complete sense and those three characters they were all easy enough to understand get into and figure out what they wanted and fit into a world and it didn't have to be super detailed but they knew what they wanted to do they had a general idea of what they could do to get it and then we just went from there because of the historical nature of it were there any difficulties particular to that setting that really caught you up? Especially because it is uh, the time period and there was a lot of like fucked up shit happening. I had to be some careful with some like going too far, but it was, you know, you know, you know your own group. If you know your own group, it's fine. 
generally speaking. As long as everyone at the table is comfortable and, yes. you know, if you're doing like some sort of live play or something, as long as all the audience is comfortable, then you're pretty much all right. Like, even though one or two of the characters was Jewish, I didn't want to have to role play the fucking Nazis, even though they were definitely there. Like, it was one Nazi that ended up stuck in a cartoon tunnel forever. That was pretty great. Because one of the players put on the corkboard, he put the real Thul Society. And I'm like, okay. So there's the occult Thul Society, which is kind of linked with the Nazis and stuff. So I made the real Thul Society basically a Kali cult, dealing with the fact that um, people in Germany at the time considered, like, Aryan, like, India and European. Yeah, that's not even at all historical, really. No, it's not. So I just made them more like a theosophist-style Eastern mystic, well, pretending they're Eastern mystic types instead of the your normal Nazis. If I remember correctly, there was some other like occult society that was sort of specifically that was the origin of the Thule Society, and a lot of the Thule Society's memories came from these guys. And I've like I, I know like that they were dealing with like a lot of the. Rene Guénon, traditionalist sort of shit. A lot of the same stuff that uh, spawned uh, Julius Avila. Yeah. One problem I had with researching this sort of stuff is a lot of the stuff I was finding was written in terms of the Nazi occultism. So even when it was dealing with stuff that was before the rise of the Nazis, it still ended up being written in a way that was all wrapped up in Nazi ideology. And that makes sense for the book, but I'm just like, well, okay, uh, but I'm dealing with all these different groups and it's only 1928. Things haven't that far yet i need on the ground current situation for 1928 and sometimes i just have to make it up with certain time periods especially i could see that being a problem where it's like the most easy to market thing known about the time period ends up overwhelming all this other interesting shit that you're trying to find out about yeah exactly any way that you're going to be marketing a book about german occultism you gotta throw the Nazis on the cover because that's what sells. Exactly. So instead, like I was trying to develop like fictional groups that were based on maybe a stereotype that is recognizable, like the junker industrialists with the Prussian attitude or reactionary conservatives. I just ignored the sleepers because they didn't exist. But instead, I had the main anti-magic cabal be a group of Second International Trotskyites called the Liaison Committee of Militants for the Materialist Tendency, who were just like really anti-magic because I thought it was anti-communist. Yeah, oh, that's good. I made it easy to bring in all the crazy uh, like Second International and communist and socialist stuff that was happening at the time, even though the players went into that. But by having one of the groups be that, I could bring in all kinds of different things and mix things up and see how they interacted. And it was fun. I mean, just create that sort of boiling stew of all sorts of ingredients that was happening at the time, but put a bit more of an occult spin on it. I did a bit of research in terms of how the city looked at the time. I found a cool website. It was in German, but it was still a cool website where you could compare satellite photos of Berlin today with 1928. Um, totally different, I bet. Totally different. Oh, in so many ways. And, but just finding little details and like boiling things down to like sort of two sentence descriptions, where it's like talking about an airport and how it's just an open meadow with propeller plans landing and taking off in the meadow with the word Berlin on the terminal visible from the air. And that's the only thing that looks like an airport from our eyes. Like, that's cool, just like a simple description that gets people, okay, I can get it. It's not a modern airport, it's old school. 
And then you can also mixing up the things which are super modern with things that are really old and like having organ grinders in the streets and urchins running around throwing stones and then having this annoying Italian in a souped up sports car drive by. That's the sort of thing you can easily do and made sense at the time because it was a time when futurism, Italian futurism was a major, like uh, not an ideology, but it was a style. And it does, when you look at it, when you look at the style of the, the cars and the artwork, it looks very the sort of hyper-modern thing that we still use. So you can make, easily mix up old and new in this sort of setting. But that is rather particular to that setting, right? That modern era works well for unknown armies. Exactly. And it was also because that's a period, and the same with Japan in the 50s, where the old had been crushed and no one knew what the new was going to be. And that's why I say so much about Germany in this time period, which is like surprisingly modern, like the sheer amount of acceptance for LGBTQ people at the time, which was just normal. And that went the other way, but it was at the time that for the first time, maybe not the first time in history, obviously, but like it was something very modern seeming. Yeah, it was taking like queerness and contextualizing it in a very modern Western framework for it. Yes. But at the same time, there was reactions to that, which are really interesting and creepy too, like what are called social hygiene films, which were documentaries fighting against what were seen as social diseases. And that's a really old school way of looking at things too. But then there was reactions to that, which are really interesting. Like there was a group that I used as a, like an allied group who were called the Auxiliary Club of Berlin Prostitutes, who were basically a workers' union complete with membership cards and fees that were rallying for basic rights to privacy and unhindered mobility for sex workers. And I assume that they didn't get on with the Trotskyites very well. Oh, in my game, they weren't really involved with each other. They were were dealing with different things. Because at the time, communism did not have uh, very uh, nice opinions on sex workers and sex work in general. Yeah, that's true. Because if you look at the history like the Soviet Union, yeah, it was weird with that sort of thing. Leftist being as pro-sex worker as they are is a very modern thing, actually. Um, which is, I, I think, a good development, but it, it is a fairly recent one. It was it was dismissed as uh, a legitimate source of work. It was dismissed as... They were dismissed as... It workers. wasn't considered, quote-unquote, productive labor. No. It tied into sort of the Soviet idea. Well, the communist idea of gender relations, which it's basically dovetailing the orthodox Marxist view of gender exploitation with workers' exploitation. So they're going to be not too big on it. That's true. I, my game, I didn't want to mess with that. So they were just separate groups. <laughs> like They interacted with the players separately because I just didn't think of any reason why they would at the time because the Trotskyites were too busy chasing wizards. Wizard Nazis, yeah. Wizard Nazis, Nazi wizards. A lot of the stuff that you're laying down here is very particular to a modern setting. Now, do you think that you could run a UA game in a pre-modern setting? And how would you do it? The Ascension of the Magdalene is like right at that edge of modernity. But moving before that, do you think that's doable? I think it's totally doable. But as I was saying, like you need to figure out what you and your players are comfortable with, what sort of research you want to do, and what do you want to just hand wave. It all depends. It's like what you're used to. I'm like, any sort of, can you enjoy a crazy TV show set in the 18th century when weird stuff's happening? If you can, then you can play a game in it. There is something to be said of 
the idea that was being discussed in the timeline of the occult underground being very much tied in with the urban environment. Because, I mean, if you're running a pre-modern Unknown Armies game outside of an urban setting, you're basically running an Ars Magica game. Yeah, exactly. And that's why when we were talking about James Summer's book, like the area of pre-modern times that most interested me was like the whole ancient Rome era because it was urban, because it had a society that you could have like the occult underground lurking beneath. And it, it seemed easier for me to run a game in the first century AD than in the 11th century because just set it in Rome, <laughs> it had systems, I could, I could work it out seems unknown armies to me that's the key thing is like every time i imagine a so-called unknown armies game i'm always pairing a specific city with it like can i imagine an unknown armies game set in the british countryside in the 11th century that's tricky could i imagine an unknown armies game set in 11th century london easily i could imagine a game set in the british countryside in like the 1970s if we're going to go the whole folk yeah. horror route which is also something i think we should do a whole episode on because it's a whole new and different thing that it sort of interacts with the sort of transcendental yeah, horror. Yeah, go into some of that Wicker Man shit. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That is also a postmodern development because the comparison between modern society and pre-modern society, the old things that's still around. I did try to bring that into my game in an extent. We, I was going deep into like, one of the advantages of doing a game set somewhere in Europe, like Germany or Sweden or whatnot, is if you go into the folklore, the folklore is similar enough to be familiar, but like has all these weird slight differences. Like to someone from a like an English speaking background, you wouldn't expect it, you know? One of the fun things to play up, and you can a game can kind of get bogged down in it, but focusing on the etiquette of an environment like that and how it differs from oh, you yeah. know, like modern and the Japan game you brought up, I think there's a lot of interesting potential there where players can easily play, you know, a Japanese person from the area or play an American GI that's stationed there and helping to rebuild things. And that allows for a player to sort of think like, all right, do I want to be someone that is really engaging with this different culture and its different expectations? Or someone that wants to sort of separate themselves and I can, people here know I'm an American and expect me to behave as such. They want to separate themselves from the culture that they're occupying until they have their unnatural experience where they see the homeless man like fly into the sky and they're like, what the fuck is this? I must learn more. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, someone's trigger event turns them into a weeb essentially. But the thing about that, yeah, it's especially those early yeah, weebs. Proto-weebs are really interesting because often you'd get the type of people who were like super interested in some very specific thing. Like I find with weeb type people, they become less annoying the more specific their interests are. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like I'm really into anime and ninjas and samurai. It's like, all right, you'd... you like the surface image. But if you were saying, I meet a guy who's kind of annoying and he's just like, I like all anime, man. It's like, oh, well, then you don't have any taste. But if it's some guy who's like, the I like this studios productions from 1987 to 1989 like even though i might not be interested at all i'm like okay, you know your shit you know your shit oh well and i'm talking about like the proto weaves before even like like anime became a big thing in like the west you know like I, I always think of that one image from that wolverine comic of him in the kimono saying welcome to japan bakugaijin god oh god i know what you mean 
That that sort of that I'm thinking of that specific kind of proto weeb. But there's also like yeah, it's hard to distinguish between like just the general sort of GI who just wants to like drink and fuck. And there's that some of those GIs get a little bit of curiosity and that can either develop into full weebishness or it could just be like i know a bit about where i happen to be stationed and i'm going to be stationed in germany next year so who cares and it's also a fun justification too because they, they can say to themselves oh I, i'm not just boozing and hoeing i'm exploring a unique culture and i've discovered magic exists yes exactly it was one proto read that i really like this guy lankerio hern have you heard of this i have not Afkadio Hearn, right? Okay, it was a Greek-Irish descent. Uh, he moved to Japan in like the late 19th century. Really, he got really weeby about things, but he got really into like urban legends and like stories okay. about scary ghosts and bullshit. Not the classic proto-weeb shit where he's just like really into a boulderized version of Bushido. No, because this was a time when the state was pushing a boulderized version of Bushido <laughs> because that was their national ideology. Yeah. <laughs> and he was going around asking questions and like collecting stories from these local people. And the government was like, no, we don't want to do this. We're a rational scientific state now. We must forget all those old superstitions. And he was writing these books and writing them in English, and they were getting really popular in the West, huh. like attracting weebs, because at the time, Japan was such a mysterious and weird place to people in the West. So they pick up this guy's book and they like all these weird stories. And that's the kind of guy I like, because at least he produced something and collected something, preserved something about the culture he was interacting with. Yeah, being that. Stranger in a Strange Land setup is a really good setup for player characters entering into a culture that the players aren't super familiar with because it allows you to mirror the players learning more about this culture with their characters learning more about that culture. You face the problems of exoticizing another culture and otherizing it. See, that, I think that can that happen regardless. I think that can happen regardless. That's happen regardless. I mean, like, I've been watching these YouTube videos where they have different historical accounts of different people like this Japanese dude who goes to Europe for the first time and like Romans they're writing about China and the Chinese writing about the ancient Romans and everyone fucks shit up everyone got things really wrong everyone all the time so you can't really avoid it just don't be a dick about it yeah and I mean like especially if everyone are outsiders already then there's a lot of onus on the GM for good or for ill to be presenting a non-boulderized version of that culture or i mean you know of people are kind of like i understand that what i want isn't historically accurate but i still want to go to the kind of stereotype version of this culture japan or otherwise and play around in that and i know that's not real but it's still kind of a fun setting to engage with a lot of the times the stereotypes that like if it's a hat tip to like a certain type of place or a certain type of person like those sort of places and types and things existed they're just not as simple and like the exoticized version of those things are boiled down to some othered perspective on them but they come from somewhere my view on this shit is if you ever start looking into history and come out of it with a version uh, with a less nuanced idea of what that time was like there then somewhere you fucked up yeah exactly and that's why i like these sort of periods where like there's such upheaval 
in like in Japan in the fifties, Japan in the late forties, because it's so much upheaval and like, what is the new Japan? How is it different from the old Japan? This is the Japan that had been humiliated by war and had a lot of the like not the culture, but the state-imposed culture, uh, the um, assumptions of it just collapsing, and then people having to reinvent themselves. That's why you have, like, at the time period, these crazy rock bands coming out of Japan that were based on the music they were hearing from the American soldiers and stuff coming in, and they were doing their own thing with it. And that's why you had, like, the crazy motorcycle gangs that ride around doing craziness. And that's just, that's also parallels what was happening in the United States, because lots of veteran americans became the hell's angels and things because they couldn't readapt to civilian life if you like know enough about different cultures and history you can be like wait a minute there's a parallel here even though it's a completely different situation sometimes it's the same things happen in different places and that sort of environment is a great place for adepts and archetypes to crawl out of like i'm imagining a situation where you're seeing you know japanese people getting widely exposed to Western archetypes for the first time. So you have uh, Japanese avatar of the matchless man, but he's not coaching himself in like the Ronin or whatever he's doing it in terms of the cowboy. That would make sense for the time period. Like that would be a personal choice. He would be a reverse weeb. That happens. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And like there's also just a lot of interesting historical figures that can be described like that. Mishima comes to mind, for example. Oh, yeah. And that's also, I bring up Mishima is good because. You can bring in so many crazy political stuff in here. Like some of the people, they want to return Japan to the way it was. But when do they want to return it to? Like, do they mean isolationist shogun run Japan? Or do they mean the imperial state that was just crushed? You were saying earlier with the whole borderized Bushido thing. That's kind of what Mishima was trying to get yes, back exactly. to. He wasn't really trying to return to like an actual feudal Japanese conception of Bushido, which again, even then varied widely depending on what era you're talking. It's like, imagine if a, if a culture was like a, a European state was like, we must return to the ideals of knighthood, like a Don Quixote, but Don Quixote as the leader of a 20th century state. It wouldn't look that different from Japan. We must return to tradition. And by that, I mean the romantic notion of knighthood. So you have like these weird, chaotic traditionalists running around as like a knightly order. Yep. It works well, and it parallels so much real-world stuff. Like, fucking Wahhabi Islam is exactly like that. It's like not its not actually what Islam was like in the Middle Ages. It's their vision of it, their modernized vision of it. And you can see that across many cultures. That's how reactionaries always are, pretty much. The past they want to return to never really existed. Not even just then, because again, why Japan in the 1950s is a good era is because there's so many future oriented people then like there was a lot of communists a lot of communists and there oh, always yeah. is there's oh, never oh, not yeah. been a lot of communists in japan and they were of course they were affected by all the fucking ridiculous first second third international bullshit uh, that was going on and the situation in china and they've been cracked down a lot in the past 50 years as a way to decrease chinese influence in japan exactly yes and so that's a whole mess you throw some magic in there and you've got an interesting pot Oh, yeah, definitely. So I guess what we seem to be getting at here is if you're running a game in some historical setting, don't worry too much about getting bogged down in the details. As long as you know more than your players do, I think you're in pretty good shape. And if you're in one of those situations where you're running a game in a particular historical setting and one of your players knows way more about it than you do, 
one, you know, start trying to catch up on the research and do what you can in the meantime. But if you get caught off guard and you're presented the situation where your player knows way more about a given subject than you do, just ask them, like, all right, how would this work? I think the best choices are times of upheaval and change where you can mix a whole bunch of different obsessions and desires together where like you were not going to set something in a like a really conservative time period where nothing changed that's a great environment for player characters to get inserted into and start setting off some of that change yes i mean that's cool yeah pretty much like it's whatever like you are interested in i would like to talk about like what time periods in the super past like before the 20th century would we be good but for me i prefer Sort of in between social change. I wouldn't play Unknown Armies in the Vietnam War. That's ridiculous to me. Maybe back in America, I'd play an Unknown I Armies game. Yeah, if you were like focusing on Saigon. Okay, yeah, sure, sure. They actually, that is a good setting. Yeah, like less that you're all soldiers in the bush. Yep. Part of the key thing here is that a urban environment creates a great so- sense of implicit enclosure. For that yeah. sort of sandbox that UA plays use towards. Yeah. Like, you can always technically leave the city, but that's sort of some sort of closure, you know? Yeah. So, I like, boundaries to it, I guess. It, it's a great focal point to have a bunch of little factions running around. Yes. It. Like, playing Anonami set in World War Two might be a bit crazy, but set it World War Two in Switzerland... I'm like, ah, yes. suddenly that becomes a game because they are avoiding the war and there's probably a lot of crazy factions there. Or like even Portugal and Spain during the time period where it was fascist, but they were neutral. It could work. Yeah, I'm not sure how well UA would work in a war zone. I think you could exactly. probably do it, but it would be tricky. And it's just, I mean, if nothing else, you know, that's a terrible environment to risk waking the tiger in, right? Or a great one, depending on how you think of it. I mean, what's the worst? It's already a war zone. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, why are the riots going to happen in this war zone? Basically, you're going to end up getting fragged, probably. Yeah, exactly. Like, wait, my officer is is a witch? What? I'm not down with that. It would be kind of funny to take some, like, especially games like Delta Green and Call of Cthulhu, that are sometimes set in war eras, like um, Vietnam-era Delta Green, and flip things on their head. Like, we are playing the Chocho, and it's Unknown Armies, and we have to negotiate with the Americans. Oh, that's fun. Like, any, like so many Delta Green games work flipped if you just if the mission becomes the players. No, yeah, like, we, we've discussed this. Unknown Armies is Call of Cthulhu, but you're playing the cult. Exactly. So I think, like, certain things, certain war time periods could work if you do something sneaky like that or clever like that. But in general... I think I think the key thing is that UA doesn't work very well when you're dealing with a lot of head-to-head direct conflict that you can't really circle yeah. around in various ways. I mean, part of it is just the way the combat system works is if you're just doing head-to-head trench combat, then you're probably going to have like at least one player death per session. That's hard to organize a game around. Yeah, it changes the point of the game too much. One of the biggest problems is whenever you're in a war zone, your key obsession and desperation and desire is, can I survive this horrible situation? 
Um, and when the point of Anonami should always be, I, I have a great and weird desire that I must accomplish. And that works better when there's not an active war going on around you. I could much more easily see it in like a one shot or something. Or, and it depends on how broadly you're talking the definition of Warzone too. Like I could very easily see an Anonami's game set during a Blitz era London, right? Or like set a game during the Iraq war, but it's in the green zone or something. Yeah. Exactly. It makes sense that, like, I think a game next to a war zone. There's enough stability there. Yeah. For a sandbox, like, UA tends to skew towards, and it can do more serial style of play. The classic campaign to go is a good example of that. But it definitely skews more sandboxy. And for a sandbox, you know, you, you have to have a box that remains intact. And that's one of the problems with like, thinking about earlier time periods to do it in is because just the way history is taught is so war-centric. And so I was thinking of, like, I would want to play a UA game set in, like, the American Revolution period. I think it could, but it'd be weird. But I could easily see one, like, we're a bunch of New England traders. We need to trade to open again with Britain, but no one wants to. And, like, that could work as a UA game yeah. in my head. See, that covered a lot of territory, in my opinion. And I think we, we covered a lot of territory. My head's certainly swimming with possibilities now. The key points, I guess, I'm trying to nail down are urban environments are good, and just having a setup that you can uh, hang a hat on, I think, is good. Uh, Torm, anything that you'd like to emphasize? Don't sweat the details too much, I would say. Do enough research. I think like when I was doing research, I was trying to pick out cool things that I could use in game. When you're doing the research, think about what am I going to use in game? What is this cool thing, like cool potential character or location or whatnot? How can I twist this? How can I mix this with magical bullshit to make something new? I mean, that's the way I think you should approach researching something like this. Don't think of the place or the time period as it was so much as what could the occult underground of that time and place have been like? Yeah, yeah. And again, even though a lot of the resources that, like, occult-focused role-playing games deal with are very Western-centric, you by no means have to be sticking with those. There's plenty of great settings for Unknown Armies or, you know, other occult underground sorts of role-playing games. I don't think you yeah, should ever feel restricted by what's been done before or, like, don't be scared. Yeah. Just go yeah. and... Play wherever you want. That's a great closing note, I think. Uh, anything else that you'd like to bring in, Tormson? Well, we could also do another segment, which is another two hours long, about playing games set in the future. But let's leave that for another another time. Well, guess with that, listeners, uh, we're closing out here. If you want to be on the show, give us a call at one eight three 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 fm rdio And tune in next time for... A bit of an experiment that we're going to be trying out later. of the most important of the many new facts.
which theosophy puts before us. It follows logically on the other great theosophical teachings of karma and evolution by reincarnation. As we look around us, we see men obviously at all stages of their evolution. Many far below ourselves in development, and others who in one way or another are distinctly in advance of us. Since that is so, there may well be others who are very much further advanced. Indeed, if men are steadily growing better and better through a long series of successive lives tending towards a definite goal, there should certainly be some who have already reached that goal. Some of us in the process of that development have already succeeded in unfolding some of those higher senses which are latent in every man and will be the heritage of all in the future. And by means of those senses, we are enabled to see the ladder of evolution extending far above us as well as far below us. And we can also see that there are men standing upon every rung of that ladder.